0: Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by the podcast Lit Up. Host Angela Ledgerwood talks with writers she loves about modern life, book culture, and all the ways sharing stories illuminates our world. Tune in for conversations with brilliant minds from the literary world and beyond, like Caitlin Greenidge, Lisa Tadeo, Maeve Higgins, Clint Smith, Minjin Lee, and Stanley Tucci. Whether chatting about the book writing process, navigating our complex relationships to the internet, to America, to the past, to each other, or figuring out how to cope in uncertain times, Lit Up offers a glimpse into the mind's hearts and creative practices of some of Angela's favorite writers and thinkers. Angie wants to know, what lights you up? Lit Up is produced by Sugar23 Look out for new episodes twice monthly on Tuesdays and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is also brought to you by Elizabeth Brooks's The House in the Orchard, a gothic novel which Tasha Alexander calls alluring, atmospheric, and deliciously creepy. The story begins in Victorian-era London when young Maude Gower is orphaned and forced to leave her city home for Orchard House in the countryside. Though Maud initially loves her new life, she finds herself struggling to make sense of an adult world she does not quite understand and confused about who she can trust. And ultimately, her efforts to maintain control lead to a violent tragedy, the repercussions of which will haunt Orchard House for the rest of Maud's life and beyond. Says Erica Roebuck, Brooks is a master, enticing the reader forward, one step at a time, but only revealing the path by the light of a candle, bewitching. The House in the Orchard is out on September 27th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. So every now and again, I have an interview where, even with the long-form, multi-hour format, I have way more questions than I could possibly ask, where either beforehand or in real time during the conversation, I have to puzzle out what conversation to have, what conversation to have out of many possible great conversations. My conversation with Elaine Castillo is one of those, where we could spend all of the two and a half hours on questions of empathy and reading, or we could have spent all of that time on the pitfalls of positive representation, or on problematic writers and problematic writing and the word problematic and whether it itself is problematic and when and how, if ever, we can separate the art from the artists. Or really, I could have spent that time on Asian film, where in an alternate universe, where I'm not doing this show, but rather another show, one on film with Elaine and I as co-hosts, as the as the new version of Siskel and Ebert But with an analysis of film, not only as an art form, but one like every other that comes from, is implicated by, and is entangled in the politics, prejudices, ethics, blind spots, and vision of the people who make it. We touch on all of these things today. Every one of these things. But really today's conversation, the one we do have, is about reading. Reading books, for sure, but also how we read what we watch, films and series, how we read our histories, how we read the world, but also the question of, are we actually reading? And what would it mean to bring our full selves to a text, even texts that don't welcome us? And what are the implications for raising our reading game to our own writing practices? It may seem like, It was by design that September is a trio of conversations about reading and rereading and revisioning and self-revisioning, with Claire Schwartz's book where we discussed extractive reading versus reading that endows meaning, with her collection asking us, challenging us to read outside the margins of types and forms. And then the latest, Crafting with Ursula, on the Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, where Really, this essay of Le Guin's is about a certain type of critical reading that can lead to a revisioning of narrative, a revisioning of self, a rereading and rewriting of the writer themselves. Today's conversation fits perfectly into this continuum, even if it wasn't by design. And like the way Lydia Yuknovich characterized Ursula K. Le Guin in that last conversation... Elaine Castillo is fiercely opinionated, and she's aiming to disrupt and overturn. And yet there is something also wonderfully open and generative in her approach and in her book, giving a lot of respect and space for the reader of her work to come up with their own conclusions. Before we begin, I'll mention that about two hours in, Elaine's earpods fail I leave that moment in when that happens in the audio so you'll understand why her voice suddenly sounds different. I think it actually sounds better afterwards. But either way, I didn't want you to feel confused when that happened. And lastly, if you appreciate these in-depth conversations, perhaps in the spirit of this other type of reading and writing and attending to self, these conversations that go beyond the normative length of a podcast consider joining the Between the Covers community and help us shape the future of the show and help ensure its future as well. Every supporter at every level gets the resource-rich email of everything I discovered in preparing for the interview and the things referenced in the interview. And in an interview like this one, that email is particularly robust. And there's just a lot of other things Gifts, collectibles, bonus audio, tons of other possibilities. So check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers and enjoy today's episode with Elaine Castillo. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical affect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories, and if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no
1: idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, novelist and essayist Elaine Castillo, studied comparative literature at UC Berkeley, studying everything from ancient Greek to the medieval poetry of Old French to the politically engaged poetry of the 20th and 21st century. She was an editor for the multilingual campus literary journal Vagabond and a three time recipient of the Rosalind Schneider Eisner Prize for her prose while studying there. Later, she moved to London to pursue an M.A. in Creative and Life Writing from Goldsmiths University of London. And just before returning to the U.S. after eight years in England, she was commissioned by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Arts Open Space to make a short film, a film she entitled A Mukbang, translated from the Korean as an eating broadcast where hosts traditionally eat a large amount of food while interacting with their audiences via webcast, but in this case where she eats a Filipino meal with her mother via Skype. Elaine Castillo's return home as a writer was a triumphant one. Her 2018 debut novel, America is Not the Heart, was met with wide acclaim, with starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, and named a Best Book of the Year by NPR, the Boston Globe, the New York Public Library, and many others. Lagaya Mishan for the New York Times described it as hungrily ambitious in sweep and documentary in detail. It reads like a seismograph of the aftershocks from trading one life for another. The Rumpus adds, the novel is both a sweeping family saga and a fervent reflection of the filipinex american borderlands. Castillo uses fiction to reveal the influence of the past on the present and the role silence plays within our communities, creating a blueprint for seeing the complexities present in the intimacies of our daily lives. And John Freeman for LitHub adds, quite simply one of the best first novels I've ever read. Castillo's is a story of immigration and its costs, a meditation on brutality and where trauma goes, a love story, a friendship story, a family story, and it's also a deeply funny story. It's astonishing she fits it all in. I've watched friends who got this galley walk around in the days after reading it as if clubbed on the head, as in, how am I supposed to read something new after this? And for a while you won't. Shortly after this, Castillo joined the likes of Greta Thunberg, Billie Eilish, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Financial Times' list of 30 of the planet's most exciting young people. And she's here today to talk about her much-anticipated second book, a book of essays with rave and starred reviews across the board, called How to Read Now. Andrew Sean Greer says, Castillo's How to Read Now took my breath away. Energetically brilliant, warmly humane, incisively funny, it whips the tablecloth from under the setting of contemporary reading, politics, and intellectual culture in a literary act of daring. It seems there is nothing Castillo cannot do. Gina Apostol adds, How to Read Now is a powerful punch in criticism's solar plexus. Castillo's take as the unexpected reader is what literature needs now, both an absolute bomb and a balm, a masterclass in the art of reading. Her art is a corrective and a curative, but also just a joy, humorous, insanely erudite, and absolutely necessary for our times. Finally, Preeti Taneja says, How to Read Now is the book we need now, a clarion call for decentering whiteness And for a truly decolonized publishing, critical, and reading culture. It reaffirms that writers of color are here. We're here to hold power to account. We're here to read each other and cheer for each other. We're here to stay. I'm so grateful for Elaine Castillo's beautiful mind and for this vital and moving book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Elaine Castillo.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to move forward from that. That's, I think, one of the loveliest things I've ever heard, and prob- almost certainly the start of my villain origin story. <laughs> 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 I, I, I was thinking the whole time, especially when you were going back to Berkeley, I was like, "This is like Hot Ones." I don't know if you've seen. Do you know that YouTube series, uh, yes. interview series, Hot Ones with the hot sauces? I'm sort of obsessed with it, and occasionally make my friends do it. And he also pulls facts really from the vault. I was like, oh, wow, I, I'm on literary hot ones to bring up Vagabond from Berkeley. This is
0: amazing. <laughs> uh, well, I want to start our conversation as you start your book with astrology. So, Yay. <laughs> not only because we begin with a section called author's note or a Virgo clarifies things, but because I learn in your acknowledgments that you were born to two Aquarius parents, that your agent is a Virgo that the entire editorial process for this book with your U.S. editor was a Virgo-Taurus-Earth sign solidarity, that your dog Xena is a Libra, and that oh, she's you're...
1: actually a Scorpio. I, I, I that was corrected.
0: It was corrected. I, we did a DNA
1: test. We did a DNA test and found <laughs> out what her actual sort of estimated birthday is. And now I'm like, oh, obviously she's a Scorpio. She's okay. very much a Scorpio.
0: Girl. My apologies, Zena.
1: No, my own. But that's the first thing I'm correcting in the paperback.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so your dog is a Scorpio, and your partner is a Scorpio, and I no, also he's an Aquarius. Really?
1: Yeah, yeah. Also an Aquarius. Yeah. Okay. Everyone in my in my childhood home was an Aquarius. My mother, my I mean. You know, lots of people came in and out of our home, but the most permanent be- members: my mom, my father, my grandfather, my younger brother—all Aquariuses. That was the only Virgo, and then I eloped with an Aquarius. So, okay, <laughs> it's a lot of bad energy.
0: So my astrology is all wrong, but, um, but I also know from your book that you associate bossiness with being a Virgo. That mm-hmm. when you were a student. And not only read everything assigned to you multiple times, but brought in related research to bolster your interpretations, that you see this as a Virgo trait. And that when you were speaking to an audience recently in the Philippines for Fully Booked, you said that being nonstop critical was, as a Virgo, your love language. So, I have a twofold question for you. One is, <laughs> one is if you could speak further to Virgoness in your mind and how it informs your approach to the book, either tonally or substantively. But also, given that I'm a Taurus with, hey. a, with a Virgo moon, Earth
1: um, sign solidarity. <laughs> how, does, how
0: does this bode for us in this conversation mm-hmm. we're about to have?
1: I think that votes very well. I mean, okay. I love all the signs equally and roast all the signs equally, <laughs> but but I have, you know, in, in their own special way, they do obviously have a soft spot for, for earth signs. I don't think I was into astrology. I think it was maybe a two or so years ago that I, uh, uh, two friends told me to download the CoStar app. And subsequently ruined my life forevermore. <laughs> and I think it was, it is it, now I realize this is a very typical Virgo trait where I've known it for two years, but I've done so much research into it, I could now do a PhD about it. <laughs> mm. Someone was talking to somebody about my North Node a while ago. I don't know what's happening to me. But I think I do realize that actually astrology and the language of astrology is really helpful for someone who's, as I said, whose love language is nonstop criticism because it's a, softening it's a, it's a it's a kind of funny sort of lower stakes I mean not lower stakes depending on who you're talking to <laughs> some people get very heated as do I but I mean you know as opposed to just being like ah you're doing all of this wrong you didn't do this you know I you know I have that person and certainly in my family um my family's also full of Aquarius I love Aquariuses clearly because I keep spending my life with them um and I'm Aquarius rising as well so I do I do have to be- they're the other sign of the zodiac that I, I I feel is very much my family. Yeah, I think I think there is a. Um, I, who was I talking to about this? It might have been in that interview as well, where we I think the adaptation, the newest, much maligned newest adaptation of Persuasion, mm-hmm. came up, and I just for, for for I think weeks afterwards, I was just yelling that that adaptation was Earth sign erasure, that El- that they were acting like Anne Elliot was a fire <laughs> sign and she was not. She is very clearly a sensible earth sign, <laughs> a highly functioning repressed person. <laughs> and I was like, she might not be a Virgo, but she's almost certainly like a Capricorn or a Taurus. She is not, you know. So I think that was the, that's kind of the, a, a softer, funnier language through which to express some of the things that, you know, I left to my own devices might just be out, <laughs> outright harshness. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to grow as a person. This is the thing, you know, Beyonce recently told us, that we this is the era of, of releasing perfectionism. So I'm, I'm trying to hold to that gospel All and, right. and be, be a looser <laughs> in
0: my life. <laughs> well, well, let's start with the title, How to Read Now. You, you say in the preface, How to Read Now, rolls off the tongue easier than a title like How to Dismantle Your Entire Critical Apparatus though you've since said on tour that this latter title is is really more apt. But very quickly in the first pages of the book, you expand and dilate what you mean by reading. For me, some of the most thrilling parts of this book are your close readings of texts uh, of Peter Hanka and Joan Didion, most notably. But, but what you mean by reading is not limited to books. That, as you say in the book, reading doesn't bring us to books. Books bring us to reading, that books aren't the destination, that it also includes how we quote-unquote read what we see on a screen, that perhaps if John Berger hadn't beat you to it, you could have called this book Ways of Seeing also. Um, so let's begin here with this broader sense of reading. Tell us why it's important to look at film and television as much as literature Um and that you're addressing non-readers and readers alike Mm. and what you're challenging us to do.
1: Mm. You know, I was listening to your interview with Abdel We were talking about this earlier, and he is just one of my favorite writers of all time, and my favorite writer in French. uh, It has been for a a long time. And he talks about this also. He talks about... in the interview he talks about not being influenced by literature Mm -hmm. primarily and also about that that kind of resistance of you know of understanding particularly because of his class background growing up in poverty in saleh in morocco Morocco, the idea that literature was this place for the elites this place for either moroccan elites who spoke french and who lorded it over you know um, people like him or his family or you know obviously the Académie française sort of (laughs) larger corona of what you know to write in french means and their their dictates from on high and i think i had that you know whenever because he talks whenever i hear him talk about that in interviews it's so it it's sort of <laughs> i get choked up kind of every time and i got choked up on you, when i was listening to yours it, it, because it, it resonates so deeply with how i felt growing up i you know i talk about it in the book uh, there was one person in my life who was a reader and that was my father. And he was 54 by the time I was born. So he was old enough to be my grandfather. He was a security guard by the time I was born. My mom was a nurse. So like on paper, our, our sort of family was and on, on paper and in practice, our family was very um, just kind of typical working class, sort of fragile lower middle class, middle class, aspirational Filipino family. But his class background in the Philippines in the years before I knew him was as an upper middle class kid, that's how he grew up in vegan, um, as someone who read, you know, who had access to literature, who was literate, who, you know, he was a, he was a surgeon, so he didn't grow up with literature and a kind of humanities sort of, this is what 18th century literature, this is what modernism is, but he grew up with a facility with it um, in ways that were entirely opposed to my mom, who's, who's who, um, the way uh, Taya talks about his mom, who's handle on literacy was much shakier who and, and not just literacy in not just literacy in english but also in Tagalog. you know supposedly the lingo frank of the philippines but it wasn't her first language and it's not my father's first language so i think i was always aware that my reading life was also class inflected it was a gift a gift i was grateful for but it was also this world that i was squirreled away from, uh, squirreled away into that that did feel distinct from the rest of my life, the rest of my, you know, my class background, my neighborhood, my other cousins. And, and I mean, I think about it, I I hadn't thought about this for a while. But I, you know, someone was asking me like, oh, you know, when you were a kid, did you give stories to people? Did you talk? And I was like, I never talked ever that I was a reader or that I wanted to be, a, I wouldn't have, it, it was, I was quite late when I thought I wanted to be a writer as well. I think I always sort of knew that it was just this it, it was a world that I entered that seemingly was only populated by me and my dad. And mm-hmm. and, and I was aware that there was something about it that uh, there was a suspicion about it um, from other people in my family sometimes that, oh, you know, by reading, maybe you think you're better than us or, you know, and I was always really at pains to, to not um, fulfill any of those or to meet any of those suspicions. And I was such a I was such a bullshy kid. I was getting into fights all the time as well. And, and probably that skill um, in my sort of young life uh, was part of it. But yeah, so I think that's how reading came or, or early reading really, really came to me as, as something that that was connected to books, but I, I never had a comfortable relationship with with books or with with the literary, I mean, you have you know, we didn't have a New York Times subscription. I didn't know anyone who read the New Yorker. Like, I when we got the San Jose Mercury News, and I flipped to the you know literature pages, and if they just if they reviewed like a travel book, I'd be like, whoa, amazing. <laughs> but you know, I didn't know who yeah. Michiko Kakutani was. That was yeah. not in my you know like if the Mopita's Post reviewed like a a book, I was like, whoa, amazing, because I knew that you know I had this incredibly tender, obsessive, but also fraught somewhat secretive relationship to books and that you know my father and i like when we went to books we went to goodwill to get used books and or we went to the library or we went to the secondhand bookstore in mountain view which has since closed down which was such a big warehouse you know we could just kind of get lost in it but when we would go to like the indie bookstore um and like the town similar we would just get you felt palpably that you were being looked at like you didn't belong there and i remember i was telling um Christine Baloua, amazing bookseller at Loyalty Books in DC, how much I wished I had had a bookseller like her, or the kinds of, you know, bookstores that specialized in the works of writers of color that were decolonial in that way. Because that just was not my experience of bookstores. My experience of sort of white-owned bookstores was very much one of like, if you're here, we're watching you because you're you and your dad look like you're potentially shoplifters. Right. So that, you know, I think there was that relationship too books and to read. And also, you know, the fact that like, none of these bookstores were in Mopitas, like we would have to go to the peninsula, which is, you know, noticeably wider, more middle class. That's also where, you know, my mom essentially (laughs) killed herself in order to pay for me to go to Catholic school over there. So there was also that kind of schism that like also spatially, geographically, I had to exit my own community in order to, you know, access the world, a world of books that wasn't just Goodwill or or the library, and then the other side of that is that I just watched so much TV <laughs> growing up, and everyone around me watched TV growing up and films, and you know one of my most formative, I think, films was Terminator Two. You know, I think I grew up, and Adenataya talks about that also, that you know he grew up on films, but not just you know like Fassbender or, or you know the, the kind of you know what what's called like highbrow cinema, but the the popular cinema or popular TV the and uh, Manuel Puig talks about it. it's also one of my favorite uh, queer Argentinian writers. Also, his his work is so much about the kind of um, what's, co- you know, what's thought of as like the melodramatic, popular, you know, telenovela sort of those uh, genres that are, are not often considered art because they're consumed by the people. And I think that was also so huge to me. And I I, I talk about it a little bit in that essay where, you know, I didn't because of those because of that formation, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want a book called How to Read Now to leave out, you know, those huge parts of my life and those huge parts of my community, people who were not book readers, but who were readers, who taught me how to read by virtue of how they, you know, reacted to the way someone, you know, stereotyped them or the way they reacted to a char- an anime character, you know, on late night PBS or something. And at the same time, I didn't want to let them off the hook. You know, like people who are like, oh, well, I don't read. I'm not part of literature. I'm not, that's the world doesn't have to do with me. And I was like, well, you are, you know, you just watched Kenobi and Stranger (laughs) Things. So (laughs) (laughs) there's stuff to, and you are reading and and being read. So I think that that was the impetus behind that kind of expansive or hopefully capacious idea of what reading can mean.
0: Yeah, no, I felt like the book is ultimately about how to read our world, regardless of whether we literally are reading words in a book. Where you say just because you don't read books at all doesn't mean you aren't reading or being read in the world, uh, which makes me think of a conversation I had with Adrian Marie Brown for the the Crafting with Ursula series I've been doing, where she similarly characterizes us being in an, an imagination battle. That if we don't actively engage in the work of imagination, we will be imagined by others and will be living within the confines of that imagined world that isn't ours, which mm. obviously is, is particularly vital to consider for marginalized people and marginalized writers. I, I suspect most people don't often think of the imagination as being vital to reality, but I, I think of this notion of Adrienne Marie Brown's when I think of your preface when you say that you felt like you first became a reader and then became a person. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit, what that means to first see yourself as, as a reader and then through the reading sort of come into a sense of becoming.
1: A sense of personhood.
0: If I am reading what you said correctly.
1: No, yes, that, that, that is absolutely how I felt. I think, I don't know, how many, how many of us can remember the first time we realized we were a person? When I look back on my life, I really genuinely cannot remember a time when I thought, oh, that's it, I've become a person now. <laughs> but I do, I do very much remember, and not just remember myself personally in terms of, you know, I, I, I have memories of myself being very young in a checkout line, you know, face buried in, I think, a time, I mean, these are kind of the kind of ancient stories my mom will tell about my childhood, about me always reading, I mean, the, you know, the, people used to say they didn't know what my face looked like until like (laughs) my teens sort of just because they'd be like, well, you would come to the dinner table, not that we ever ate dinner regularly, but you know, you would eat and you you would have your plate in front of you and then you would have a book sort of balanced in front of your, or in front of your plate. So we just never, we never saw you. Mm. So that, I think that has stuck with me in the sense that I still (laughs) wonder how, how, settled into personhood I feel I mean I think that's that's the that's the that's an, a, a larger existential question I'm <laughs> this, this is gonna I'm, I'm reading a lot about virtual reality right now because for, this is the kind of thing that happens when you're writing a novel or trying to meet a novel deadline people ask you what you're reading and you have to you say very bizarre thing you know very out of like oh, I'm reading about different types of leathers and <laughs> just the kind of weird research and I'm reading a lot about virtual reality and thinking a little bit about personhood and ego dissolving and, and, and also the profound um, how virtual reality, people who are, are, are using virtual reality for medical purposes, for therapeutic purposes, thinking about virtual reality as um, perception modifiers, something that fundamentally can change because of the kind of visual, overwhelming visual output it sends to our brain, yeah, how we feel and how we think. And not just about, you know, what we're seeing in front of us or, but about our bodies, about our sense of selves, about where we end and the world begins. And and there's been some really exciting, really intriguing sort of research being done about how it can be used to, for people who have chronic pain or anxiety or PTSD, because the ways that they're describing virtual reality or or how something like that works on us, what they're really talking about is imagination also. And the, and there's so many instances where in the things I'm reading about um, the powers of virtual reality, it sounds like reading a book. It sounds like what happens. I mean, to a, to a much lower extent, obviously the power of virtual reality is that it's so all encompassing sensorially in ways that, you know, you in this headset, you're immersed in this world, but it's not that different from what happens when yeah, you are don't think truly so viscerally captured by a book or viscerally captured by a film. So that I love that idea of the, imagination battle or the imagination as a, a theater for for a really fundamental yeah battle ultimately I think that what you were talking about with imagination or, or if we don't imagine ourselves that we will I, I'm not now I'm going to paraphrase it even though you said it literally 30 seconds ago we'll, we'll it'll be left to others or we'll be stuck with how we have been imagined by others I think about that. I was thinking about this recently when, oh, what had come out? I mean, one of those very tedious, I mean, it, this is the kind of thing that comes around, uh, I, I feel like every season, like seasonal allergies, <laughs> you know, uh, some sort of very reactionary kind of faux white liberal article that's about like, oh, white people should be able to write. You know from the perspectives of people of color otherwise we lose the powers of imagination and we lose free speech we lose artistic freedom etc all of things that i mean in principle i i don't i don't find noxious but you know things like free speech or artistic freedom are very easily weaponized to ultimately protect the powerful from any substantial critique and i, th- I was thinking about it when i think you can have an article like that that's supposedly defending sort of the, the rights of, I guess, middle class white people to uh, write whatever they want and also to to inhabit um, the worlds of anyone they want, including, you know, what they're always talking about here is I should be able to write like a person of color. That's always it. And don't tell me that I can't. Don't tell me that my freedom is restricted in that way. And when you put that hand in hand with the, the statistics that we know about literature, which are that, you know, since the 50s, what is it like 3 percent? Or something like uh, of of literature has been written. Uh, I'm, I, of course, I'm not a numbers person, and I <laughs> if it's a three, it might be an eight. So you'll <laughs> you'll understand that there's a sort of numeral, uh, numerical, numerical, uh, not 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 dyslexia—the other word for it—in my brain. But you know, I think it was something like in 2000. Yeah, in in 19, since the 50s, just the the percentage of literature that had been published in America that was by writers of color—I mean, a pitiable percentage. I think, and in 2018, that year that my first novel was born, I think it was something like 10 or 11%, which was like one of the highest. And so you put that statistical reality with these kinds of self-aggrandizing arguments, the kind of logical endpoint of that is not only do people not want writers of color to write their stories in a kind of material, financial, you know, uh, yeah, material way in terms of you know the books not actually being published, but white people should also think they should write those stories for us. Right. That, that that is that is ultimately that's the that's the end point that you're reaching when these two arguments are being uh, employed side by side.
0: Well, let's flip that and think about it from the perspective of the reader, too, because I really like this, for instance, when you say that white supremacy makes for terrible readers, <laughs> um which i which I think is a great um a great quote. And that we excuse racism as coming from ignorance as if, in your words, If only people had told me Filipinos were human, I wouldn't have massacred them. But that in fact, it isn't ignorance, but rather that we're overeducated in white supremacy. And I think this is a really brilliant framing. Um, You call white supremacy a formative collection of fundamental reading techniques that impoverishes you as a reader, a thinker, and a feeling person. A set of techniques that we're so educated in that sometimes I think we can't see that we are educated in it in the first place. And thus we might even mistake it for ignorance of the other rather than seeing that the ignorance of the other is actually sort of baked into the education itself, if I'm understanding you correctly. Um, but if I'm understanding you correctly, I think you're, you are not just speaking of the education of white readers and how white readers read, but of how we've all been given this over-education and white supremacy and its reading practices. Because one, one book that I've been thinking a lot about as I was reading your book is a book by Dion Brand called An Autobiography of the Autobiography of Reading which is about reading, and it sort of speaks into this too. Uh, one of the things she mentions is a quote by the Marxist Trinidadian historian C.L.R. CLR James, when he says, Thackeray, not Marx, bears the heaviest responsibility for me. And Brand, who, whose own work has been influenced by Marxist thought, says Thackeray, not Marx, made her too – And she then goes on to do a close reading of Thackeray's Vanity Fair and how when she read it when she was young, she laughed like C.L.R. James had, um, as she was supposed to do alongside Thackeray as he made fun of the aristocracy. But reading it now, she's amazed that she didn't see that there was a Sambo character on page one and on page seven And she barely remembered Mrs. Schwartz, the, quote, rich, wooly-haired mulatto from St. Kitts, who appears 36 times in the book. And she describes her not remembering of a horrific drawing in the book of a black woman portrayed as uncomfortably ill-suited in Victorian clothes as an act of, quote-unquote, clinical forgetting that to use your framing, perhaps, and I want your thoughts on this, perhaps Brand and James were also overeducated in white supremacist reading techniques, something that you and Brand are sort of step-by-step suggesting ways to unlearn. And I, I wondered if this rang true. But either way, I was hoping you could s- just speak a little bit more to this question of of racism and racist Reading practices being an over education rather than an ignorance.
1: Mm. I love that um, that uh, the idea of Thackeray. Thackeray made me not Marx. I'm, I'm, I, have, I haven't heard of that book. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick it up after this interview. Yeah, I mean, I think. Oh, there's 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 mul- multiple things I want to get into in this in in this question. I mean, that is the magic of well, not just. White supremacy, but uh, the magic of of a particular type of uh, reading technique or, or a particular type of and it is and it is political political interpretation. It's its ability to make itself invisible, to make itself seem invisible, inevitable, and thus neutral, universal. This is just how we see the world. I think that's that's the overwhelming uh, effect of treating racism as a product of ignorance, as opposed to as a product of very studied overeducation, a studied, a studied, I mean, epistemic production—a a way of producing knowledge about the world that then produces people in the world. You know, and I think, I think that my my uh, equivalent or my my version of that would probably be Homer made me <laughs> before Marx made me. I read, I read Homer before I read marx and i read greek myth I was a real big classics nerd from from a kid because my my dad gave me edith Hamilton's, you know mythology and we read all of these sort of the, the kind of children's versions of the myths and then the the you know the the translations of things like yeah homer herodotus in the in the in the era where i thought i was going to be a filipina and carson <laughs> and and you know I, I talk a little bit about my my classics past um in the last essay of the book especially I'm um, talking about Homer's Odyssey and a specific scene I, I think that always stuck with me the the scene is a it, uh, one of the more, most famous scenes from the Odyssey the scene of Odysseus essentially um blinding the Cyclops but blinding Polyphemus um the Cyclops and and how the scene the 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 passages that I'm talking about, I mean, they feel like they could have come out of Christopher Columbus's sort of journals. You know, the way that Homer, uh, the way that Odysseus sees Polyphemus on his island, the kind of unspoiled land of it, the the savagery of him, the savagery of someone who doesn't, you know, have agriculture and thus doesn't exploit the land to its fullest. You know, the the, the vision of his home as a place that someone who brings civilization like Homer can exploit extract resources from, you know, and, and the violence. I mean, it's a, it's, it is one of the most violent scenes of of, um, of the Odyssey. And then the kind of turn of the essay is that, well, Homer didn't write any of this, or at least not the passages that I'm describing. Samuel Butler wrote this. Samuel Butler, the translator, the you know, colonial era translator of Homer wrote this. Samuel, Samuel Butler, who left England to come to New Zealand on a ship called Roman Emperor, wrote this so what are the kinds of ways of thinking about the world ways of thinking about who constitutes a monster and why who constitutes a, a, a killable life a destroyable world and why and how is that being passed on to butler's specific readers because there are translate you know there's there are the, there are s- distinct differences in butler's translation uh, as compared to for example emily wilson's translation the first moment to Translate the Odyssey into English, you know, the kinds of things that Butler elides. For example, Odysseus's name, you know, Odysseus, Odysseus' name means, you know, one, it comes out of his grandfather, his grandfather's legacy, his grandfather, Autolycus, his legacy is hating others and being hated by others. But Samuel Butler, which is sort of, um, that's the kind of etymology of Odysseus, you know, hate, pain, wrath, suffering. So it's both. Suffering you meet out, uh, suffering you meet out to other people, but also suffering you incur. But the Butler translation all only says, "My legacy is that I, you know, I hate everybody else." He doesn't. Butler doesn't include it. Also means you're hated by other people. Mm-hmm. You know the the kind of. But Wilson preserves that that nuance that it,
0: that is in Homer. She also uses the title for that chapter, "A Pirate in a Shepherd's Cave," yeah. which yeah, yeah, yeah. which is making Odysseus the pirate. It, exactly. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and cyclops the shepherd.
1: Exactly. And there's this um that you know that fundamental turning on the head of who is the hero in this scene and why why are we being told that you know um Odysseus is the hero in this scene. Um and not that we're being told that by Homer himself. I think in in the in the in the text there's a complexity to it. I think what I'm thinking about is how the classics have been deployed by people with specific political agendas to uphold specific ideas about what constitutes Western civilization, what, you know, even things like, you know, the kind of 18th 18th century sort of German-British archaeologists like Schneemann and Heinrich Schneemann, and all of the people who sort of, you know, wrote long, long tomes about how, like, the white statues of Greece really represented something about rationality and purity and beauty and of course carbon data later tells us none of those statues were originally white they were all painted colors they were all very colorful but that idea that that kind of image that vision of what you know greece might have looked like doesn't line up with very specific ideas that people are trying to uphold Mm. about about race and the classics and about what they want the classics to corroborate about their ideas about race
0: so so my last guest The poet Claire Schwartz, Um, she curated a multi-author meditation on Toni Morrison's only short story, the one where there are two girls of different races, but it's never explicitly said which one is which. And how this story really sort of exposes a lot about how we read. In Claire's essay about the story, which is called Reading Otherwise, she says, quote, in Specters of the Atlantic, Ian Baucom posits the novel as the genre that conditioned thought in line with the speculative finance system that underwrote the transatlantic slave trade. The novel, Baucom explains, honed the idea of types that tethered the present to a fixed set of futures. If a person is X, then they will be Y a mode of thinking required for the brutal calculations by which a person, kidnapped from their home, could be sold as a commodity in a place far away. The reading practice that corresponds to types is skimming, a process of extraction carried out in accordance with prefigured ideas about what one will find, and then fastening those ideas to a limited set of meanings, or as Baucom puts it, the novel altered the knowable by indexing it to the imaginable. And then she continues, Morrison's story, which Morrison called an experiment, exposes the extractive practice of skimming, what often passes for ordinary reading, as itself a set of brutal experiments, racial propositions, and hypotheses that constrict meaning To marshal the present toward a fixed future i don't know if you do but i think of your project in conversation with this for instance when you bring up pamela paul's ex-husband brett stevens article in the new york times
1: i literally did not know any of these facts until i think a month ago
0: me neither (laughs) (laughs) so pamela paul's ex-husband um Wrote about the controversial awarding of the Nobel Prize to Peter Hanke, or as you call him, the casually fascist stylist Peter Hanka, And you look attentively at Stephen's defense of reading him and his desire to add books by him to his shelf, especially the quote unquote non political ones. But thinking of this notion that Claire brings up, that much ordinary reading. May not be reading at all, but rather a form of extractive reading that is really skimming. If I read you correctly, if I read Elaine Castillo correctly, your argument is that to read Hanke non politically is not to read him um, to imagine you are reading him for the aesthetic experience is actually not to read many of the things that are right there in front of you that he wrote and i i wanted to I wanted to <laughs> I guess I wanted to put that in your lap and see if I was on the right track. Do you do you do you hear a kindred analysis in what Claire was was speaking earlier?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going <laughs> to I'm I'm going to say something that might be <laughs> provocative but may also launch a new era of literary criticism. <laughs> I've said that I really love Aquariuses. Toni Morrison is an Aquarius. That short story is one of the most Aquarius pieces pieces of art of all time.
0: My
1: <laughs> uh, I, 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 my my agent and I are have this um <laughs> this like private battle where we're we're trying to to start the astrological school of literary criticism. <laughs> that Wong Kar Wai is a Cancer filmmaker, which absolutely tracks. These are very much Cancer films. So <laughs> sorry, that is that is. <laughs> I, I, I understand understand that is being deliberately uh, shit stirring. But I think you know, I, so I, for for a while as a not as an air sign as an earth sign, for there there was some times where I had not difficulty with that short story, but maybe sometimes difficulty with the kind of thrill I think people got from reading it, or the the thrill people had about feeling like its provocative sort of lack of labels kind of unsettled their assumptions i mean but this is probably an earth sign thing i'm like just give us the material facts you know but but i think you know what you're talking about with the extractive process of of reading and and not to bring it i mean i am going to bring it back to virtual reality but in one of the things that i was uh reading with respect to virtual reality there was a essentially a kind of clinical experiment where they they were trying to Essentially, they were trying to understand, like, why? Why do we see some things and not see others? They were doing a kind of visual experiment, and you know, a bunch of, I think, uh, doctors were in a VR headset or in a, in a VR landscape, and were asked to like count how many. I think sort of like how many um, balls like went into a hoop or something like that, and they were asked to they were asked to look at a specific thing, but in the experiment, they had like a person with a gorilla head just run through the landscape. And later they asked the people what they saw. And it it turned out something like 70% of the people didn't see the gorilla at all. Didn't see it. Didn't, didn't register it at all. And it was because they had been told to look at something else. They'd been told to look for something else. And because they weren't told to look for that or to be aware of that, they just didn't see it. Um, And I think of that when I think about the, uh, well, it, it, it reminded me of some of the points that I, I and I was thinking about when I was thinking about how how Hanka's Nobel win was being lauded and, 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 and vociferously defended and under what terms. Because I don't, you know, there's nothing in my, I read Hanka and, and a lot of Austrian writers growing up, as I talk about in the essay, and I, there's nothing in, in me that's asking people to not read his books or any books that we might deem you know, problematic, which, have been saying is a very nothing burger of a word but you know it's just this idea that well I'm reading him but I'm reading him non-politically okay well you're not reading him because it's there on the page and it's not even the sense of like well I'm separating his aesthetics from his politics as if that were an endeavor that were possible in any case but it's just simply that's just simply not the person with the gorilla head is running around on the page you know so the idea that you would read you would read the books and be like well no i'm only i'm only reading for these very specific beautiful sentences okay the sentences are literally like about white victimization and seeing yourself as a suffering chinese man when you're a white middle class person but okay you know the I mean, you know it it, it requires a, a a real willful act of ultimately misreading it requires a very willful selective type of engagement to say well those things uh, they make me a little bit uncomfortable but i don't really want to engage with them or or deal with them or you know but all the other stuff the the rhythm of the sentences the you know the succinctness of the prose or the 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 way the ruminations are shaped you know that's what i respond to i mean i'm not saying that that's a that's an unworthy way of responding but don't say that that's not political because i think that's also what i'm trying to get into in the larger um point of that or not point but the larger kind of argument of that essay uh which is called like reading teaches us empathy and other fictions is it, a lot of it comes out of you know my analysis of H- hanka also came out of just seeing these kinds of cliches around literature being sort of circulated perpetuated That you know reading teaches us empathy and and the kind of subtext to that was always like, well, reading marginalized people teaches us empathy because you know we have to feel empathetic towards queer people and people of color and immigrants because like it's really hard what happens to them. And then when I read these books, like it really makes me a better person. And we think, I mean, ulti- you know, and what I say in the book is that it creates this dynamic by which we go to marginalized writers to learn specific things to extract ethnographic data. I mean, what you're talking about is kind of extractive skimming, but white writers. We get the pleasure of just feeling the universal. So I'm just reading about marriage. I'm just reading about, you know, existentialism in this Aust- in Salzburg in this Austrian town. And we don't talk about how the project going back to this idea of white supremacy as a as a specific educational practice. You know, the 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 project of telling us that reading Hanke is non political is obliging us of a very specific type of politicized empathy it's obliging us to emphasize with a very specific a specific political racial class perspective context you know in 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 very in imaginative in material ways it's asking us it's obliging us of an empathy that we don't name empathy and we don't have to call you know we don't have to call those types of you know imaginative leaps empathy. that's and then going back to you know the, the magic, that is the magic trick of white supremacy, that we don't have to think that this entire way that we've been taught to see and feel and excuse um, is part of a is part of an education.
0: I like that you say magic trick. I think you make a really persuasive case in walking us through this specific book of Hanke's that you it, that that book, perhaps all of his work, I, I don't know his work, um, can't be truly read not as deeply political writing that you describe as, which I love the white man blues with a goose step beat. But what's interesting speaking, thinking of magic trick trick is not only how blazingly obvious the politics are when we attend to the prose alongside you in the book, but also the way he at the same time sort of casts a spell, I think of intentionally imprecise language Um that both the book and the protagonist are sort of dodging true seeing of the story that they themselves are telling. Um, and he does this successfully enough, as you recount in the book that the critical response to the book while mixed also misses the troubling politics uh, um, of its main character. Um, it's it's kind of wild how you expose not only the way the author asks us not to see but the way the critics don't see that loser the main character is obsessed with skin color with foreigners and with immigrants but also what you alluded to earlier about this notion that even while he's obsessed with this he he sees himself uh, in the in the subject position of the suffering Chinese man he's not he's a white man. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit to this protagonist, to the weird translation of the title, and, and this connection you make between, I think con- convincingly between the sort of a politics of white victimhood, where he's more upset about being reminded of what Austria did than by what Austria did. Um, but I was hoping maybe you could just talk a little bit about it, because it is a very weird um, but familiar a very weird but familiar flipping of a narrative, but also a lot of smoke and mirrors.
1: A lot of smoke and mirrors. We're going to return to that—the um, kind of weaponized ambiguity—later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the English title of the of this novella is "Across." The German title is "Der Chinese des Schmerzes," which is basically means "the suffering Chinese man." Which I mean, I guess I imagine an American publisher was like, "Let's find something else for the market," but the the French title and the Spanish title uh, preserve it, um, almost almost literally, uh, li- yes, literally translated. And you know, it, it, it centers essentially around this kind of middle class white uh, classics teacher. Uh, speaking of the classics, you know, imagine having this person as your classics teacher who essentially sees um, uh, a person scratch a swastika into a tree, becomes enraged by this, kills the person, dumps their body. And then the rest of the book is kind of the fault, fall- uh, you know, the kind of existential fallout from that of which existential fallout, um, because there is no sort of judicial or, or you know, he, he walks free. There's no um, there's no actual uh, consequences for for this murder and a lot of the you know as i talk a lot of the the critical response to it was about framing this uh novel as this kind of existential novel about murder and uh being on the threshold and you know what is between you know this the kind of singular life disrupting acts sort of Tosses someone between one part of the world and another, and there was just I just could not find critical essays that were talking about the fact that you know he was he's constantly noticing foreigners, he's sort of wanting to internally yell at these noisy foreigners to be quiet because this is Austria, that he's constantly having these kind of grotesque fantasies about slaughter at the hands of you know foreigners, that all of his metaphors are you know something that looks something that's scary is like a like a. Uh, An Incan temple and that, you know, so that he, you know, the, the, so much of the novel is, is, is uh, meditating on this particular type of white grievance and, and white uh, victimhood that he, you know, it's very of a piece with the the, you know, the people who say something like reverse racism, because then he thinks of himself as I'm the, I'm the different one. I'm the one who is alone and isolated by the, the other sort of boorish Austrians who don't understand me. So I'm the suffering Chinese man. So, you know, there's this kind of appropriation of marginalization, while at the same time revulsion of people who are actually marginalized in Austria. I mean, as you say, the language... And I mean, this, this is I, I don't I don't read um, as German in, in in German I can read a little bit and understand a little bit, but my partner reads in German. But you know, I, I can have an, have kind of enough um, to sort of analyze some of the grammatical structures. Um, and the translation uphold, upholds, you know, when you talk about smoke and mirrors, there is a very the the way his sentences are structured. I talk about it in one sort of pivotal line where the narrator describes throwing the stone that ultimately kills the person who who vandalized this tree with a swastika and the way it's structured in German because of the German structure um, puts the verb at the end. So already, you know, that's just German grammatics. It's the, the verb is deferred, but there's no, the way he says it is, but then the stone was thrown. And like in German, you can say, but then I threw the stone. Like mm-hmm. you can say that that's not an, that's not a <laughs> grammatical impossibility. <laughs> you know, there can be subject <laughs> Um, but there's a very specific way where that you know this this kind of action sort of a, a appears out of nowhere, and there's no there's no responsible actor. The stone was thrown, and the, you know there's a complete sort of abdication of responsibility of how it's thrown and by whom, and and there's that that kind of diffuse smoke and mirrors, that kind of deliberately kind of obfuscating uh, kind of use of specific grammatical structures to kind of defer responsibility or defer clarity um that's really throughout And i, I mean I, as i think you're you're um as you're saying uh, is, is absolutely part and parcel of how we come to read someone like hankes like this you know incredible sort of existential stylist um uh, of, of a piece with you know other austrian writers who, who who can who can also write in a similar style that can sometimes be uh, perceived as convoluted, like Thomas Bernhard. Bernhard although I, I prefer Thomas Bernhard work, Bernhard, 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 Bernhard's work. So yeah, I think that's that's there. There is absolutely a kind of, um, you know, in Toni Morrison's uh, *Playing in the Dark*, she talks about if ev- the word she uses when she's talking about the, you know, how, how people manage not to talk about race in literature and races, for, you know, race in literature is evasion. Like it's more elegant. The, the, this, there's this elegant language of evasion that says that it's more elegant, more civilized, more, you know, worthy of literature. I'm obviously horrifically paraphrasing now, but uh, you know that there's that 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 kind of elegance of evasion is one that allows, you know, pernicious racial stereotypes or or, or a pernicious a, a way a kind of in, an entire race, racial and racist framework to persist and i think that's 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 very much alive in Huntka's work and i think it's something that i've been wrestling with generally and i i, I <laughs> talking about <laughs> earth sign literalism <laughs> versus aquarian air sign kind of uh, <laughs> floating. Go <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 going to start this astrological. I hope uh, so. School of literary criticism, but I, I I talk about it a little bit in um or try to develop it a little bit more in the John in the essay that's one of the not the penultimate but an essay towards the end that's about um, a John Berger short story but also about my experience in my MA program and just because I've been thinking about ambiguity, concepts like ambiguity and indeterminacy and the unknown and how, I mean, as a diasporic person, all of those things are, that's my city, you know, I live there. But at the same time, you know, and also as someone who has experienced, who has some experience with the kinds of abuse that John Berger or or that I'm talking about in that essay understand how ambiguity and indeterminacy and very deliberate unknowns are also can also be weaponized i was thinking about I, re- I just read this amazing novel that tommy pico recommended to me by chantal um it's post-traumatic by chantal g johnson and there's this great line in there oh god now i'm gonna paraphrase it again i hate doing this to other writers um ambiguity is is, is vital or oh god i can't remember. ambiguity is necessary for aesthetic for you know aesthetic expression but it's terrible in real life, <laughs> something like that. Oh, I'm so sorry, Chantal. <sighs> but you know, that that that, that dichotomy. And I, I remember thinking about that and holding that for a, for a long time.
0: Well, Hanke is only one example of a way of reading that reveals texts that don't see and also seem to help the reader not to see in the way that you're talking about. You also do this with Joan Didion and with others. Um, when I think about Dion Brandon, CLR James, laughing as Thackeray wants them to, or the critics who fall for losers worldview in in The Suffering Chinese Man, um, they both kind of speak to me to a certain seductive power of story that how things are framed, who is granted interiority and complexity, what is described or ignored, all can be ways to set the reader in allegiance with one character or another, and one might not even realize the various ways that we've consented um, as we read. Uh, Returning for a moment to Claire Schwartz, who said, when we skim, we extract meaning. When we read, we endow meaning. And also, the great possibility is not the smooth fiction of continuity, but the jagged edge of unfinishedness the infinite invitation to reread and thus revise a way out from the real of the now, what otherwise might we mean for each other? I, I think of this when you say that having grown up, you were almost always the unexpected reader, but also that in the end you see that being the unexpected reader has been one of the greatest gifts of your intellectual life. Um, and what I imagine that you mean when you say this, that it has to do with, in a sense, attending to the text deeply enough to not consent to its system of meanings as invisible scaffolding, but to sort of engage with its structure, which I'm guessing as the unexpected reader would be a more apparent structure, perhaps, than a, an than a expected reader. I don't know if I'm saying this well, but introduce us to this concept, which is one that I've already been mulling over and quoting from. Um, I really find this a useful concept. So if you could tell us what the unexpected reader is, more generally speaking, and then how, um, having lived it, you find from a critical perspective as a reader that it actually has ended up being a superpower.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. first of all, that's very kind. <laughs> I think I think I started thinking about that or started phrasing it that way. Oh, when was that? Ah, oh, now I can't remember what is time in the in this pandemic era. But I think it, it not that long ago just because you know when you when you're a reader on your own, especially you're a reader on your own, the way I was for so many years a reader on your own you're not really exposed to how I at least I wasn't I wasn't really exposed to how other people read or expected to be read I think I I, I, you know as I said earlier in the conversation I it it was such a it was such a solitary activity for me and because of that I was used to reading books that were not for me that had not imagined me that could not imagine that I mean in all likelihood could not imagine me that where I was in an, an invited presence where it was not about my community where in, in any literal sense where you know sometimes you would read a book and like suddenly people would be talking about you know Filipina seductresses like you know like, like in could say I mean in the could say a book that I, I mentioned or you know I was I remember I was talking to I think I might have talked about it in that Gina apostle interviewers watching Abfab, fab absolutely fabulous that british show and i was so you know I, I thought the show was so funny it showed on pbs i think i was thirty, 12 or 13 and i wanted to show my friend another pin I, this cool british show that i was watching and the very episode that you know we had a sleepover and the very episode that we watched was one where they just tossed off this like racist joke about filipino houseboys. and i remember my friend just looking at me like oh really oh this is this is your show and the the embarrassment and the the mm. that i felt in that moment but you know i think at the, at the same time i was also inured to that i think you know because I, I never had the sense that i mean this is also true i i don't i think i also never had the sense that books were a place to escape to and i think i also had the sense that books were not a safe place which is different i think it's distinct from saying that books were a place that i loved or books were a place where i felt viscerally connected or alive those two things not are not necessarily the same or 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 viscerally you know in the world in ways that were i mean you know in that phrase that you said that was very beautiful uh, uh, like release what is it uh, free us from the real of the now something like that i thought that was really moving
0: A way out from the real of the now. A
1: way out from the real of the now. Yeah. Yeah. That's just what I thought reading was. And so then later, and particularly as a published author, to come to realize that, oh, that's not what reading is for everybody. Lots of people come to books expecting to be, to have their hands held. Lots of people come to books expecting that everyone in the book sounds like them, looks like them, maybe has a life that's different from them, but that life is legible to them. Lots of people come to a book expecting to understand every single word in it. I mean, you if you read, I mean, certainly if you read Homer, you didn't understand all of the words that were being used. But I mean, even if you read Manuel Pliegue, you didn't understand. You know, if you read George Eliot, you didn't understand. I mean, there's lots of Greek in George Eliot. But, I mean, you know, just because I understood, if I, if I hadn't understood Greek, you know, or, or you know, get very... Get very touchy and feel very alienated if there's untranslated words in a otherwise English book. So it, it just came. It, it just started to feel apparent to me that there were actually readers and reading practices that were entirely predicated on being expected, on being catered to, on on having, on being maybe performatively or sort of challenged, but ultimately centered and edified in very specific ways that that prioritized them and i just it, it it seems so anathema to me it seems so alien just because it, it it's such an impoverished it seemed to me such an impoverished way of reading not least of all because it it does nothing to meet a book's vulnerability with your own and that it seemed that felt imposed on me from being a kid just because I was, I you know, there, I was always an interloper in the books that I read. And sometimes I think about it a little bit like when you think about those big country estates that are in Austin or in, um, yeah, Austin or or, or the, the, the big, you know, um, Gilded Age townhouses that are in Edith Wharton. Uh, I love Edith Wharton. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't use Edith Wharton as, a, as an example. I also like quite a lot of Austin. Um, and the difference between being invited as a, as a guest to those houses and coming in through the front door and sitting at the table and speaking the language and, you know, being in the main dining room versus being a thief or a servant in one of those houses as I would have you know someone like me would have expected to be not not, not necessarily imaginatively. I mean obviously you know I, I very much identify with Anne Elliot. <laughs> so as a highly repressed person who fucked up and doesn't want to bleed on other people. <laughs> so I'm very I, Anne Elliot is that's my that's my person. but you know that the, the, the difference between what it's like to to prowl around a house and what you might see, you know if if you come to a house not necessarily invited versus how it is to 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 come to one of those grand houses invited catered to fed the kinds of the kinds of food you you might have to scrounge for yourself the kinds of things you might see that if you were invited you might otherwise miss or or be invited to miss you know
0: yeah oh and the flip the flip side of that equation of the unexpected reader that I also thought was useful was that writers or comedians or whoever who are shocked by uh, negative feedback that they receive, uh, it's because of this notion that they haven't even imagined this reader or this audience member. Like, they, they didn't conceive of this person um, engaging with their art. And perhaps in their dismay at the negative feedback for their racist or homophobic uh, activity, they wish they weren't reading their art, perhaps
1: yeah i mean i think that's so the the obeisance that's often demanded when i mean at least that it seems to me that's being demanded when people try to weaponize free speech as a way to essentially shield themselves from i mean legitimate critique by you know bipoc writers who are pointing out racism in a in an author's work or trans writers who are pointing out transphobia in an author's work or public persona you know all of these things are just saying well i mean i didn't i didn't expect I didn't expect you to talk back.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of talking back, I was watching a video of the of the French Algerian writer and philosopher Alain Siqsu recently and she was talking about her close friend Jacques Derrida that when he moved to France from Algeria that he aimed to master French in order to harm it. Which mm-hmm. which makes me wonder if If this gives a subtext to deconstructionism and uh, to the tortured syntax of Derrida's language. Because I had a recent guest on, Hernan Diaz, who studied under him and called his writing. Oh, really? Yeah. And and called his writing style poisonous. But I wondered if that was by design, like if part of what he was doing was wounding French, uh, wounding a colonial language. But it also makes me think of my conversation with Abdelataya, um, who also feels at war with the, with the French language, um, something he speaks about inside of his own books as well as outside of them. But he's definitely another author who's creating a new French through his encounter with a French that would rather have him submit to it on its own terms. Um, and this is my long way of asking you to talk about your name, which you engage with in this book. Um, which looks like Castillo, but is pronounced Castillo, uh, because it feels like it, perhaps it's a, it too is a way to stand before a system of naming, before an entire imposed colonial language, and find a way to create agency or to unpin oneself from a, a system that's trying to pin you. C- could you talk to us a little bit about that legacy of this system of naming in the Philippines or... or what it means to you that your name is Castillo, mm-hmm. and if there's something about it, some aspect of that gesture that carries over into your writing in other ways.
1: I love that you brought up Derrida, someone I have a very fraught <laughs> relationship with. I love Fernand Diaz calling his, his writing poisonous. There was a, a time in my college life, so I guess be between the ages of something like, yeah, I guess like 19, 18, this is around the time that people get into continental philosophy, <laughs> I, I I read a lot of Derrida. I read, there's a book of his, Le Monolingualisme de, de, de l'Autre, and there's I think the opening line of that is, "Je n'ai qu'une langue, ce n'est pas la mienne," which is I only have one language. It's not mine. Hmm. Uh, essentially, it's talking about you know the, how he speaks in French, and and yet his foreignness within French as a you know Sephardic Jew who of Spanish descent who, who was born in Algeria and the kinds of um, uh, sort of cultural context that that subsequently you know followed him and and influenced his work. One of the books of his that I was reading just before he died. I, w- I was living in Paris actually in two thousand four when he passed away, and I, I there there was this kind of it was a very it was a, well I mean it was a strange time to be in Paris anyway. As, but it was a strange happening, and I think at the time I'm, I think I was reading. Uh, God, what is the title? It's his book on Paul Celan, the Romanian poet who wrote in German and who very famously wrote and felt enormously conflicted about writing in German, writing essentially in his language, in the language of his poetry, but also in the language of the people who butchered his parents. The way Celan's poetry sort of is grappling with the meaning of writing in the language of your parents' butchers Undoing German in a way, uh, undoing it from within, uh, dissolving it, breaking it down, arguing with it, but also ultimately making poetry out of it. I, I, I remember I had I, I held a collection of Sinan with me for a long time because it resonated with me, um, and then I and then I I, 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 I remember after that uh, there there was I think there was a History of Derrida essentially defending one of his colleagues who had been accused of sexual assault. That that's that's right. It's, it's I can't I can't remember the exact details. And then you know of course, of course. Uh, going back to some of the things that I, I'm writing I, I'm writing about in that Berger essay, I think probably say you're bringing it up, but I think subterraneanly I must have also been thinking about uh, Derrida in that time period. I love how. Abdelataya writes in french um, when i said it's my favorite he's my favorite writer in french i mean when i lived in france i remember going to the fnac and you know reading in french and, and, and going for books and being so struck by how there were there was or there were rows for literature fiction uh, essay whatever and then there was the corner that was literature francophone or d'outre-mer, which is to say you know the Literature from the colonies, Francophone literature, which is not French literature. Let's be clear about that. It's literature in French. (laughs) It's literature written in French by the people we colonized. Um, But, you know, Edouard Luisson, Aimé Césaire, you know, they were all in the Francophone literature uh, category. Because I I started learning French and then it subsequently became my second language. And I speak it now better than the or Gorpangasinan, which is a very very weird fact of my life. Um, I started learning French in 2004, and then I think I found his books in 2000, I want to say six or something, because I think that's when... Um, I have them here, actually, in French. The ones that I got... Um, I think that's when L'Armée du Salut came out, and mélancolie Arabe. And I remember just being so... It was just such a... It felt like breathing after after having been underwater. The way he wrote in French, the way he writes in French, and the 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 way his French is such a resistance to the kinds of French I was being taught, you know, the what constitutes proper French, what constitutes French literature, what L'Académie Française says about French literature, all the fucking shows in France with old white dudes talking about, you know, the latest novel. And then the, just even the way the intellectual culture in France, was you know I'm saying this because I'm going to France next month because the translation of my novel is coming out. So this is all I'm gearing up to have all of these arguments and um, you know there's such a it's such a resistant French and I think in your in the essay in the interview with you he talked he talks about it as pauvre français mm-hmm. like not mauvais français not bad French but the French of the poor um, poor French and and how you know the specific context, the specific ways that he speaks French, the 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 things that he is drawing into that French, the rhythms and the language and the even the incant- incantatory kind of rhythms of it are all in allegiance to something that is not, you know, the hallowed all the all the, all the laureled, uh, writers of, you know, the, the Académie Française says are are the great, the great lights of French literature. I, I was grateful to, to to read him at that time. I think it illuminated things for me that, you know, now fraught to me. But there is that line about I only have one language. It's not mine. I, I felt that very much about English that I, you know, I mean, I was I, I, I was before my brother was born. I was the only person in my family who was. English was their first language so and I and I'm you know my partner also English is not his first language so I've never I've actually besides my brother I've never lived with someone who was like a quote-unquote native English speaker mm. so I think I've always been surrounded by people who themselves were works in translation and then I think they passed that on to me that I also felt that my English that my English was fundamentally felt and I lived in it fundamentally differently from people whose you know had gener- we, we we talk about generational wealth i also think about like generational linguistic wealth you know generations of people who always felt comfortable speaking this language and and that's just english you know the 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 passage that you're talking about it towards the end of the the essay someone someone said to me recently like this is a very clever thing you did talking about how to pronounce your last name in the essay because now you know who's read the book and who hasn't depending <laughs> on how they introduce it's, you or how they pronounce your last that's name right. I, was like, I was like that was not in, that was not intentional that sounds like a scorpio thing to do which i'm saying this as with love my best friend is a scorpio <laughs> um or i mean maybe it's a Virgo thing to do to put this like secret quiz but I, I hadn't realized that that was it. I think I was just, you know, I'm, I've often thought about my name and, and and sometimes you just have to, you know, just as a person going around the world, as a Filipino, uh, Filipino person going around the world, you know, sometimes you say your name to people and this especially happened in, in England, obviously not in the Bay Area because I'm I'm not in any way an anomaly in the Bay Area. But when I was living in London, you know, you would say your name and they would be like, how does that Spanish last name not visibly Spanish-looking face to my eye. How does that, what is that? Are you married to a Spanish person? Are you, what? And, you know, thinking about why I have a Spanish name and why we pronounce it the way we do, it just got me to sort of research and think about surnames. Because I knew about, but the thing that I talk about in the essay is the Clavería Decree, which is essentially this decree um, just basically telling colonized Filipino natives to, choose a name from the catalog of last month, the, you know that essentially the spanish colonial government distributed to, to throughout the archipelago which you know worked successfully in some areas and didn't and and you know some t- you know and, and and worked in these very kind of idiosyncratic ways sometimes the governor would just be lazy and just give you like the the part the part of the catalogue from C through E and it was like here, you can choose a name from here, I'm not gonna give you the whole catalogue. You know, all of these things that are entirely dependent on the whims of that particular histor- you know, colonial governor are things that we are living in the legacy of that through through that. That that's how easily cultural genocide can happen. And I I think about that when I think about obviously how how my my, my family pronounces our name and how I i do routinely have to say i mean I've, I've started to get better at it i'm like if you call me Castillo, it's not that's not before i would become very militant about it but as you know beyonce has said i'm trying to <laughs> <laughs> release perfectionism and 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 be more uh, accommodating and and less of a dickhead uh in my life so yeah i mean i but i used to be, be a lot more militant about it and you know i think. I don't think it's something actually, no one in my family talked about the fact that we pronounced the name wrong, ultimately wrong in, within a Spanish colonial view. This was always, this is how we pronounce our name. And I would remember, like I remember the first time, I think I was watching a video with the Filipino author R. Zamora and he was talking about a character in his book, and the character's last name is Castillo and he was reading aloud from it and then he said da, 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 this person Castillo, i think it's edmund or edward Castillo. and he said it the way i say my name and i felt there was this sort of visceral shock because there's a specific way that you know filipinos say this name that i i don't hear often you know outside of my own like community and so when i saw when i i remember when i when i saw that that clip i remember feeling this I you know I, I feel like so surprised you're not even able to categorize what you're feeling as joy or pleasure, and you know the the, the pleasure that I feel when I hear Filipinos pronounce my name the way my father pronounced it and mm-hmm. when he said you know you're a Castillo. you know all of those things are, I think it, it was sort of just trying to take a journey back into why we pronounce our name that way and and how it could be an act or a form of of resistance or a way of I think the line is is like a punchline back to back back into the void, you know how, and and how that relates to how Abdelataya uses and deploys French or resists French or fights with French, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, he made me even understand like Beckett using French. For a while, for a long time, I had a real like suspicion, and I still kind of do have a, a sort of. <sighs> Yeah, maybe uh, suspicion or impatience around Beckett's use of French, just because the the way it was, the way it's often sort of framed is that he was using it, it, like purified his language. You know, he's able to access this kind of pure language by writing in French. And I think he himself sort of describes it that way. It's easier to write with, what did he say? Like it's easier to write with no style or something like that. I mean, obviously he still writes with a very specific style, but. I think i I started to come to think of it as like well he's also an irish writer to write in english is also a very specific thing for an irish writer and to so so how could how is that choice also in its own way um have echoes of the colonial or or, or specifically political
0: well if we if we think of your name Castilio and bring it back into reading i wonder if part of the equation is not only that we should really read what is there Uh, really read the words within all the different matrices of meaning and um, whether sociopolitical, aesthetic, or ethical, or psychological, but also that we should be bringing our full selves to the text, aware of where the texts themselves don't welcome aspects of who we are. Again, I'm going to bring in Dionne Brand's book um, because she like you, is she examines different strategies to engage with text, to try to find a way to be fully herself in engagement with the text. So at first, she like, um, takes passages from Camus the Stranger and, and but names the Arab, gives a name to the Arab and rewrites them with these unnamed characters being named. But then she looks at counter-narratives. After doing a reading of Jane Eyre that's similar to the one you do of Jane Austen, she looks at Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea and the ways that it successfully repositions narrative and also the ways that it falls short. Then she looks at uh, past Between the Covers guest uh, John Keane's counter-narratives, engaging with Mark Twain, and finds it remarkably successful. But she settles on a different strategy altogether than renaming or counter-narratives. She asks the question what if one were to completely ignore narrative demands, synergies between social arrangements and metastory, to narrate our own consciousness, to describe a Black life in the register of the social and the political and not in the pathologies or the pathological, and something that she later calls a sovereign point of view. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you, you see your revision of, of Carlos Belosan's America's in the heart, his landmark book of Filipino American immigrant experience and, and a book that you've said is important to you um, and written about. If you see a revision of its title to America is not the heart uh, in your debut novel, it, if you see it in this light of a sovereign point of view that the nation state can't be in the heart or, or at least not the nation-state that occupied the, the Philippines. Um, but perhaps no national narrative can be in the heart of a sovereign narrative, perhaps in the way that Dion Brand describes. But I, I'm curious about that practice of, of revision for you. I
1: mean, I think like all great fights, that title started off as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Which... <laughs> because essentially I wanted I think I wanted to call the book America isn't the heart America isn't the heart with a conjunction but for I think whatever reasons or potentially it was something as simple as ethio or something that we couldn't do that isn't it turned into is not the heart but the last chapter of the novel is still America isn't the heart to to preserve that and I think it was and this is a very (laughs) Filipino thing it was a kind of oral pun just because if you say America is in the heart it, with a kind of Filipino accent it, to me it always also often flip side sounded like America is not the heart and I always thought that was funny I think growing up I always and I always thought there was a shadow of that it, it just also just because in in Belosan's work itself the I, I often say there's two endings to that book where there's the penultimate chapter which is rough ends rough and then and not optimistic, it ends in a kind of, not radical pessimism, but does not, the, the final chapter gives us uh, this kind of sweeping belief in America, which to me has always felt very, I, I have, I've always found those two chapters very disjointed, um, in, in fruitful ways, uh, potentially, or in honest ways, and that, you know, potentially, that is truly how we feel about a nation state and even a colonial nation state. One of, I mean, Abdessattya talks about this in his, you know, adult relationship with France. You know, feeling sometimes a great love for certain things, um, certain movies, certain, certain actors, certain, you know, Robert Gusson, Um, while also obviously having, you know, deep, uh, a profoundly fraught colonial relationship with France and its legacies in Morocco and North Africa. So I think you know I uh, that's the, the title initially started out as a joke. I, I, I think I want I, I wanted to put into existence this private joke I'd already I'd always had about America's in the heart. But absolutely, I, I I love that idea of sovereignty of of claiming sovereignty. I think it 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 falls a lot into I think some of the the frameworks that I I, I feel most. I don't know if if the word is uh, useful to me or the frameworks that maybe I feel most beholden to, but absolutely. I think I, you know, because I come out of a ultimately anti colonial uh, point of view. And I I think I also, I, I think I can also recognize that my positionality as my subject positionality as someone who was born in America, who was born with American citizenship, and thus as someone who is not an immigrant has the space then to not feel beholden to it because I'm of it that um, I don't have to feel like it's in my heart because you know I was made here I uh, so I, I recognize that my uh the, my, the difference the difference of opinion <laughs> we might say that I might have with with Bolosan is though those are you know those are very we we also are experiencing very different uh yeah we're, we're, we're speaking from very different positions in the world despite I mean, his back, his background and provincial background is very, very similar to my mom's, to to my family. also, you know, from a very. I mean, basically from like the town next to my mom's. So you know, when he describes rural poverty in Sinan I'm like, that's my mom's childhood. <laughs> yeah, I think I for for me, I think it's always been easy. Uh, yeah, maybe that's that's <laughs> that sounds flippant. I just have been. I've never. It's never interested me to hold America in my heart. Just that side, side. I remember as a kid when they would make us put like the you know our hands over our hearts when we said the Pledge of Allegiance. As a kid, I was like, "This is fascist. This is so weird. We're we're in a very weird moment." And I thought that as a kid, and maybe I thought that as a kid because of you know the kind of subtle political education that my parents were <laughs> imparting it to me but i think it's also because they they imparted a there was an indifference to that romantic romanticizing of america and its meaning that they passed on i think that, you know both of my parents my mom in particular were very practical about what moving fleeing really but moving to america you know meant for them meant for my mom as an escape from rural poverty you know but also as an escape from the marcos regime i mean i'm a martial law baby my my existence is not possible without is is entirely made by my mom being from the generation that fled to the marcos regime so i think that that understanding our uh, i don't want to par- i don't want to once again paraphrase and 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 fuck up a paraphrase but understanding you know re- resisting entirely what, what what can you repeat that line resisting that um
0: to narrate our own consciousness to describe a black life in the register of the social and the political and not in the pathologies or the pathological.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that really speaks to my (laughs) materialist sort of, yeah, in in some ways, proto Marxist feminist, just the social and the political, not the, not the pathological. Yeah. I think, I think that's always been my, yeah, my, my, my way into things. I think some I think that's probably also why I uh, for so long and and still to this day I etymology.com is probably still one of my most visited websites mm. just because I've always you know I always think of when I use words you're dragging them out of the ground and they still come to you like dirty carrots that they're still covered in all the dirt and all the manure and all the things that made them and when you see the etymology of a word you see all of that everything that went into making it
0: yeah no thinking of you digging digging for these meanings you say in the new zealand chapter as americans we remain willfully illiterate to ourselves and if we think about that like our own self-reading as as americans um maybe in connection to this notion of of extractive reading and skimming or weaponized uh ambiguity um which I'd also I guess would also consider like a weaponized incuriousness because um like I think as a host for this show I I can't rely on if it's not a white writer who's speaking to sort of a normative white audience presumed white audience I can't presume any sort of shared knowledge of my listenership. If you would come on for your novel, I can't assume that anyone knows about the Spanish-American War, let alone the Philippine-American War. When I had Morgan Talty on from the Penobscot Indian Reservation, I can't... No one knows anything about mm. um, the history. Or um, Miriam Chauncey, whose book is set during the post- haitian earthquake the indemnity is something that most people have no idea about Mm -hmm. it's it's this continual sense i think that you rightly say of willful illiteracy but i loved your chapter on new zealand and australia because for all of the book you're just you're super fierce and confident and then you're sort of like you become very um, uneasy with yourself and your response when you go there. You even go so far as to say at one point, maybe I've discovered a new species of white person, but then you, you reel it back and you realize you're romanticizing. And you I was like, I'm having any pre
1: love moments. Chill yeah. Out.
0: You're worried about like being a, adopting colonial travel writing. Um, you, also, you also, but you're also compelled by this bilingual origin story in New Zealand, uh, a national story that isn't entirely illiterate to herself, even if it may only be aspirational. I, I don't know what it's like on the ground. And, and you complicate your own romanticization and gushing about it. But maybe you could just spend a moment and talk to us about the way this different framing there in relationship to indig- indigeneity sort of made you fall for it in a, in a certain way.
1: Well, first of all, for the first part of your question, I mean, you're a better person than me because I am the type of asshole that protects, expects people to know. So I and I'm growing as a person. Someone told me recently was like you cannot expect everyone to know about, you know, da, 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 or you can't just get mad at people when or get mad at me when I uh, haven't, you know, fulfilled the the adequate level of knowledge that you deem. I think this is something about like so this wasn't even about anything that was like uh explosively political even though dogs to me is very that dogs to me are a very political subject i yeah i mean my experience i mean this this entire book would not exist if i hadn't gone to new zealand just off the bat i I was very reluctant to kind of accept what was happening to me but i think the word you're saying is compelled I, i did feel very i did feel compelled being there i did feel like something was happening to me and to my brain being there and was writing just started writing and was writing in the in the hotel rooms and and i think i mean as you said i'd the, the genre of travel writing is very complicated very fraught very uh, rife with neocolonialism and i was aware of that and also kind of also aware that you know i'm one doesn't, I, I keep bringing it back to this Abdelataya thing, but I also, you know, he. I think he says something very beautifully where he doesn't have to write to feel like a good person. You know, I'm also, I'm also okay to animate the parts in myself that might have been re- reproducing or, or, or interrogate the parts of myself that were, that might've been romanticizing uh, things that I didn't understand completely. But I think what I, the overwhelming thing that I felt there, besides just this, what, what anyone feels when you're away from home and you're jet lagged and your mind is porous in ways and your body feels porous in ways that they aren't otherwise is that, well, for one thing, it, it felt like I was seeing a settler colonial story that shared a lot of similarities with the one that I came out of, but then also evinced some very specific differences. And, you know, one of the things was just seeing white people speak Maori. I mean, obviously I was at a literary festival. This is a very, which is a very rarefied atmosphere and I make pains in the essay to show that I'm not romanticizing, you know, woke white people in New Zealand as having it, you know, <laughs> as, as having it all figured out. Although I will say in terms of, you know, their ban on assault rifles after what happened in Christchurch, I do think that, you know, I think they've got some things uh, figured out. I'm not uh, on, on that level. But, you know, I was just sort of starting to think like, well, I mean, you know, I live in, and was born on Tamiyan land and, you know, no one, none of the government officials, and of the signage in my town was Tamian or I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't think I'm being unkind to say that. I think a lot of the people that I grew up with would never have even heard of the indigenous languages of the region that we were in. And I think I, I was thinking about that with respect to California, but then I think I was also... It was also animating things that I felt about the Philippines because of so much of the essay is about my experience in New Zealand, but also kind of the way that, because I was hiking in New Zealand, this is a very new thing. I'm not a hiker. I mean, I sort of am now, but and the way their the colonial history of their sort of flora and fauna was being framed and how it made me think about how to read landscapes, connecting that to how how do I read the landscapes. And the colonial landscapes of california and how do i read the climate disasters that are in the philippines and how all of those things have inherited a specific history of colonial era exploitation um, and resource extraction that have left legacies ravaged legacies on the actual land and you know i think when i was seeing these connections. I mean sometimes it's even some, some, something as kind of emotional as understanding like like the word mana and how it that word in Maori is connected to the word as it exists in the Galog or in Whangasinan. Mm. and you know understanding that that language family was once the most widespread language family in the world before the 16th century, which is to say before the colonial era and seeing all of these kind of bouncing resonances that essentially proved that that there was this these echoes that were speaking to each other or echoes that were in conversation with each other in ways that i, I hadn't been aware of um i think well I hadn't been aware of i mean i think sometimes you you're kind of vaguely aware of it i think a lot of be, because of the specific i think i think ethnic positionality of at least in the kind of Filipino community that I came out of, which did, I think, sometimes feel, and I certainly sometimes felt a dislocation within, for example, larger Asian American identity, just because the the history was often different. The ethnic stereotypes were often different. The, you know, the relationship to English or the relationship to coloniality was very different from, let's say, like, you know, my East Asian classmates or something. So sometimes there was this... um, affinity, I think, between Filipinos and Pacific Islanders and uh, in ways that I think sometimes elided differences between us. I mean, in Guam, for example, I think, you know, my grandfather worked for the U.S. Army in Guam, which is to say worked for the colonial state in Guam as a Filipino person. And that was how basically, you know, he was able to even somewhat feed his family Um, and, you know, thinking about how his position in Guam was one of ultimately settler colonialism as someone who himself was, who whose own country was also colonized. I think about that also with, you know, Hawaii. I mean, and I talk about it a little bit in the Didian essay um, about the, about how Didian writes about Hawaii, about the history of Asian Americans and Filipino Americans, particularly in Hawaii, who were sort of brought over to work as sugarcane workers, but who's, presence in Hawaii is not is also part of settler colonial history, and sometimes, you know, um, eliding that fact, or sort of assuming a solidarity between Asian American and Pacific Islanders, Mm -hmm. in the ways that it often is assumed, um, is one that does a disservice, I think, to, to the latter, certainly, but also to the former and the kind of more nuanced ways we actually uh, relate each other. I've now gone very... I mean, you can see what New Zealand... uh, (laughs) Going to New Zealand did to me. I've now like spiraled further and further into it until just kind of a larger Pacifica (laughs) sort of like uh, Grand Unified Theory, which I don't have one at all. I think I just was seeing these constellations and felt... felt, Yeah, I was just seeing these constellations.
0: Well, uh, I want to talk a little bit about... Your chapter, The Limits of White Fantasy, which looks at Handmaid's Tale, Hunger Games, X-Men, and also sort of hold it in juxtaposition with the chapter named after the John Berger quote, Reality is all we have to love, which feel like they're in in a conversation or maybe there's a friction between the two Mm -hmm. a little bit. But I was hoping we could hear a little bit from that chapter first.
1: Sure. When Rowling's transphobia became more regularly discussed among the wider reading public—BIPOC readers have been pointing out the latent racism in the Potterverse since the book's publication— I often saw readers and fans lament their disappointment in Rowling's views, struggling to make those views line up with the allegories of difference and triumph that they had nevertheless found in those narrative worlds. I saw readers expend great intellectual and emotional effort to salvage what they had once treasured in her works the characters and passages they've been saved by. An effort I sympathize with, understand, and have gone through myself. I've personally never been particularly interested in separating the art from the artist, an impulse of exceedingly mild intellectual rigor, which has only ever really served the powerful and protected abusers. We never hear about separating the art from the artist when a writer of color wants her work to be read beyond the autobiographical, for example. People seem very keen to connect the art and the artist in that case, but God forbid someone tell the fuckboy boy who wants to read you another mediocre love poem that Pablo Neruda freely admitted to raping a Sri Lankan chambermaid during his posting as a diplomat there. What I would point out, however, is that this very dynamic, taking stories of oppression and marginalization, stripping them of most of their racial and historical specificity, leaving just enough to add a frisson of exotic slash erotic flavor, and recasting them with white bodies, is at the heart of most white fantasy, and thus is also the source of the incongruence that minority readers later struggle with when those authors turn out to care little at all about the oppression they once so beautifully illustrated. How can a writer who wrote so convincingly about being a misfit be so indifferent to the plight of misfits in front of her? How could Marvel, home of X-Men, that supposed bastion of civil rights metaphors, be at the crux of such right-wing, misogynist, racist, homophobic fervor as Comicsgate, the reactionary harassment campaigns waged by fandoms against perceived social justice warriors, feminists, anti-racists, queer artists, and readers, out to ruin their precious comics? How could those fans miss the irony of attacking minorities while at the same time defending classic allegories of oppression devoted to narratives of resistance and community building? The truth is, these worlds may have only ever nominally been interested in oppression and difference. That shallow cosplay-like understanding of oppression makes itself clear when authors like Rowling are taken to task for their actual opinions on marginalized people. I can no longer muster up disappointment when white authors whose works supposedly deal in equality and justice show themselves and the reactionary readers who love them to not be remotely interested in either equality or justice. Not when both the inception and the material effect of that work necessitate lifting from the historical struggle of racial, sexual, and economic minorities, and replacing those bodies with white, cis, straight characters. Were these works ever truly concerned by justice to begin with? Or were they simply enamored with and appropriative of its language, its culture, its aesthetic, its narrative style, oppression chic, equality core? Why wouldn't white anti-vaxxers adopt as a symbol of solidarity the three-fingered Hunger Games salute, first introduced by the fictional revolutionaries of Suzanne Collins' series and then more recently adapted by pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong? Why wouldn't white seditionists during the January 6th Capitol riots chant as they attempted to breach the civic building in their systematic attempt at a coup? The Black Lives Matter rallying cry in memory of George Floyd, I can't breathe. Both of those facts lose any semblance of irony, even grotesqueness, when seen through the logic of white fantasy. But wasn't that the banal point in the end? As much as I will always love universes like those of the X-Men, I can't separate the metaphors that I've loved and have often been saved by from the realities of their circulation in the world. These were stories that deliberately hinted at solidarity without ever doing the actual work, aesthetic or otherwise, of solidarity. And I can't ignore the fact that when Marvel began to take much-needed practical steps toward that solidarity, most explicitly in the company's hiring, pay structure, and storytelling, it was met with militant resistance by the mostly white, mostly male comics consumers who had always seen themselves, first and foremost, in the stories I loved. And why wouldn't they? All these years, those stories told them that it was fans like them who were the victims, the misfits, the minorities, the oppressed.
0: have been listening to Elaine Castillo read from her essay collection, How to Read Now. So what's what's so interesting to me about this, about a book, say, like Handmaid's Tale, using real historical oppression of women of color but transposing it to a dystopia with white women as the target, the way it shows black experience but without actual black people uh, and these other ways in which these books and comics and shows you mention signal solidarity and justice when doing something else entirely is that it improbably makes me think back to the moves of Hanka and, and Didion um, that you point out. And that, in, and this light also now to me feel like fantasy moves. Um, If Hanka's character can both hate non-white people and yet imagine himself as one, or the way Didion does and doesn't situate herself in Hawaii, what she's seeing is this wildly imagined fantastical world, um, while simultaneously insisting that she's attending to the details. You describe the characters in her essay, Letters from Paradise, as not being good at seeing, but rather at a performative kind of seeing. Um, Like when she says, I do not believe that the stories told by lovely hula hands merit extensive study. I have never heard a Hawaiian word, including and perhaps most particularly aloha, which actually expressed anything I had to say. It seems to me she seems to be simultaneously saying that the very language that arose from this place is ill-equipped to describe it, or at a minute... Or at a minimum, we don't need to study it to find out. But also at the same time, the subtext is that what she herself sees and has to say will be, quote unquote, accurately expressed. I guess I just find it wild to think that these two, quote unquote, realist writers are doing something in a similar way one might expect in a project like Hunger Games or Handmaid's Mm -hmm. Tale or X-Men.
1: Oh, that line is wild (laughs) (laughs) the thing about lovely hula hands i was like whoa y'all are just letting this (laughs) fly yeah i mean i i used to say in early interviews for um for my first novel that i grew up thinking baywatch and beverly hills 90210 was science fiction you know the california that they were depicting felt that might as well have been mars to me and i i I went to SoCal recently for the first time in years and years. I remember we, drove, we were driving down the Pacific Coast Highway, and I saw Malibu. I was like, oh, that exists. <laughs> I guess that you know, the, the Baywatch. I guess I've been ragging on you this whole time. I guess, I guess, it, I guess it wasn't science fiction after all. But I mean, it just, you know, impressed to me how much the something like the predominance of shows like that, or indeed the predominance of, of a writer like Didion really disseminates this particular idea and this particular meaning um that California has to the world. And yeah, I love I like that idea of thinking about <laughs> Hanka and Nidian as unintentional fantasy writers. I mean probably that's a that's a description you could extend to any of us in, in a yeah. in a way. I mean nation nation building is a is a certain is a feat of science fiction. I mean my, my father when I I used to ask him or not ask him, I think he just used to tell me unbidden. It's like you're an American made with Filipino raw materials. And you know as someone who like grew up on Terminator 2, I was like, that's very cyborgian. <laughs> that sounds very that sounds like yeah. I'm a synthetic person.
0: Yeah, I like that too. Well, I feel like I could have spent all of our time together just talking about the notion of, of quote unquote, problematic writers. and that's a term that I really do not like. But it yeah. does feel like it's a subtext of this collection. In in the world at large, and I'm not saying you do this, but at the world at large, I have uneasiness about things that are seen as problematic, but are I think are different. And they might lead to the same question about how am I going to engage with this art and this artist, but they're not the same thing. Like, for instance, if we think of the Didion and the Hanukkah uh, examples of being people who um, whose politics is being skimmed over and excused um, as if you could de- decouple the aesthetics from it. That seems to me like one category. And I'm not saying these categories don't overlap. There's another category that you have art and then you have somebody who made it, who does something horrible in the world. But it's not necessarily manifest in what you see in the art. Um, so that's another one. And you bring up some of them, you bring up as you did with Pablo Neruda, but you also bring up, well, Steinbeck's not a good example of it, not manifesting since he actually (laughs) stole material. Um, but, but there are people who do terrible things in the world, um, which may not be as obvious in, in the work. But the third category that is, um, I guess the one that's most interesting to me and, and I don't know if you'd agree that these are separate categories, but this is the category that's most compelling to me to spend time with, but but also the one that worries me that gets collapsed into the other categories because I think this this third category of so-called problematic writers um, is describes a lot of people. And it's where there's an aspect of the work that is truly visionary and other areas where it is limited or or even regressive in the same work. Um, when you say about Didion, this is writing as sleight of hand as balancing act, writing as parlor trick to be pulled off, not writing as a practice of being in the world, being of the world. It made me think of speaking of sleight of hand. It made me think of the Mexican film Roma. I think it's doing something very different than how it was received culturally. Uh, something that involves a sleight of hand with gaze and point of view where the indigenous maid's subjectivity is largely evacuated so that the white upper-class Mexican director's childhood memories can then be told through her eyes. And it's told in a way that also largely indemnifies the family from any structural responsibility for the very real things that happened to her in this film. Um, let alone erasing any backstory, any meaningful connections or memories of her past or thoughts that she might have had outside the home. And there's a really great review of it in The Believer by Pablo Calvi that unpacks a lot of this. And the subtitle is Alfonso Cuarón's Roma is the unaware get out of Latin America's indigenous people and it's working poor. And I don't mean to be singling out this movie. It just made me... Think of how there's something in in the way you described Didion and the way I experienced Roma that if you were to pull the string on the problem with its gaze, the entire thing unravels in a certain way. There's a politics that falls apart. I mean, obviously there are things about it that are like positive representation that were like uh, things that had not happened before that the movie could be credited for. But what worries me is that when someone's doing something visionary and limited at the same time, which I don't think, I'm not pointing these out as examples of that, but of the opposite, that they're often also treated as if irredeemably ill-conceived, mm-hmm. as if the thing that is limited or regressive has in some, by necessity, contaminates the yeah. visionary part. Um, like I love the way you engage with the Wong Kar Wai films about how one of the reasons you love Happy Together the most now is because it only has men in it and that you've realized as you've aged that his portrayal of women feels lacking in his other films that you've loved Um, or how Watchmen is profoundly radical uh, and yet falls completely short around how it portrays Vietnam in relation to U.S., the U S imperial project and the way it shows Asian American characters, which feels different, for instance, to, to the Spike Lee Vietnam film, which to me feels more of a problematic, like something about the gaze, at least for me, goes through the whole thing, despite seeing his, what I would call failed gestures at a liberatory politics in it. Mm -hmm. But, um, but most movingly, I love how you both speak to the vital importance for you of Belosan's book that it remains groundbreaking today, in your mind, but also the ways he falls very short, again, regarding women. In your essay in The Nation, you say, as a Philippinex writer, I know well that I'm one of Belosan's many children. It's a fact I cherish with my whole heart. I also know that to be part of a family also means having to fight and that fighting with your family is sometimes a way of fighting for them. I guess I just wanted to hear a little bit more about that. I love it. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's so, it feels so much uh, outside of this dynamic of whether we're canceling somebody or not also. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's it's inviting in nuance and complexity, which I do think, I mean, there's there's people that are easy to cancel, but then there are people who, I'm not saying they're getting canceled, but there's a tendency to just, like, reduce it all down to its worst element.
1: Yeah. David, you do not know how many fights I got into about Roma when that film, <laughs> that film was out. It felt like every single day I was fighting for my <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I need to. I felt like there were friends. I was like, I, you act this. I I, I think I remember yelling to one friend about another friend. I was like, don't listen to this person. They think Roma is valid. So, Vietan Wen has
0: problems with that movie, too.
1: Oh, my good God. Yeah. I mean, that movie, I, I, oh, yes. I mean, basically, safe to say that everything that you said is absolutely how i feel about that film and its critical reception and i I was thinking about uh, this is i mean newsflash this is going to be another very long-winded circuitous spiraling answer (laughs) surprise surprise from someone who is terminally long form uh i was thinking about that recently when i was uh, i've been wanting to write and i won't i definitely won't do it i don't have the time to write this essay about People who write about, or filmmakers, non-Western, which is to say non, not from the West, from the American West, and, and specifically not american filmmakers who make movies about the American West. I was thinking about it with Nomadland, which
0: mm-hmm. for
1: me is there. way. <laughs> Nomadland is very much, I was also fighting for my life. Me too. <laughs> um, The Mustang was another one. Um, Power of the Dog, which I think comes off a little bit better than some of the other no, the, the Mustang is a I think French or Belgian film. It has Matthias Schoenard's in it and also takes place in the American West and just the ways people animate their fantasies about the West and civilization and marginality through these kinds of preconceived notions about the West and and, and, and what you know how how the West lives on in, in these peoples, uh, in these artists memories um but yes very much so about and and i think in 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 a in a similar vein it's not really um my interest never is really about i'm not really interested in um cancellation either not because i'm not interested in cancel i feel like <laughs> i'm a very combative person <laughs> i was like cancellation is too light a word i'm fighting with people <laughs> uh, so i think you know when when i was thinking about writing that essay it was trying to think about, you know, works that might be visionary in some ways. And I mean, I, just the way that you very definitely put it visionary in some ways, and also in, in sometimes in the same breath, uh, regressive, someone was talking to me about someone, uh, one of my friends is going through a real Philip Roth moment uh and is <laughs> they're they're also fighting for their lives but i but um, I, I i i i think i am and i i have been reading because of her yeah. recommendation i was like i like a lot of this
0: <laughs> that's funny because like you know if we had spent time with quote unquote problematic i would have i mean i have like too much but like for me <clears> he <throat> was and this isn't to this isn't to push back against the things that people critique him about but for me he was life-saving yeah. as a, around certain ways he interrogated Jewish identity in the United States yeah. um that I do think were visionary but I'm just going to read since you brought it up I'm just going to read one thing from Garth Greenwell my favorite Philip Roth is also his favorite Philip Roth which is Sabbath Theater so if you're going to read one oh, you oh, have I haven't read that. He's, he has bad books he has like maybe 10 books that are not very good but Sabbath Theater um and, he, and Garth Greenwald talking about how we rarely see uh, sex scenes involving disabled or infirm bodies, um, mm. but also calling one of the moments, which is a scene of, of, of these two people urinating on each other, is one of the most tender moments in in literature. And this is what he says about, um, about Philip Ross, and she brought him up. Uh, one measure, maybe for me, the most important measure of the greatness of art is the extent to which it is open to the full range of humanity, including the monstrous, the abyss we all stand on the brink of. In Sabbath's theater, Philip Roth faces up to the abyss. He forces us to spend time with, to come to know, a man who in many ways is repugnant. Also brilliant, hilarious, aggrieved, wounded, entirely human. He reminds us that moral condemnation is seldom a profound mode of knowledge of the other. He reminds us of everything else we can know about a person if we suspend our condemnation. It's one of the greatest books I know. And then in his class about it, can we value art that offends or outrages us? Can we bear to feel sympathy for characters who do monstrous things? Must literature uplift? What is the role of moral judgment in art? And are there good reasons to preserve art or at least some art as a space that resists moral judgment? That's where there's a conservatism. Even if there's a progressive impulse, there's a conservatism in the the word problematic that I wonder and fear, I guess,
1: ultimately. No, I, I feel that absolutely. And I like the categories that you have that you've set out, I think. I, I mean, I'm, certainly they do overlap, but I, I think those are those are useful categories for thinking about the the degrees to which we allow ourselves to surrender to art, or refuse to surrender to art, or can't help but surrender. I think, and and the the last category is the, the, the stuff that personally we can't help but surrender to. And I think about, I mean, going back to something we were talking about earlier, which is you know, the kind of relationship to art, which. Is either morally morally condemning or morally edifying? I think a, a lot of the problem and a lot of the you know incomplete and you know very unsatisfying politics of some of a word like problematic is I think a lot of a lot of the mistake people make is thinking that the things that they love because they love them should be morally good. I love it, therefore it is good. Therefore it makes me. good. It's a lot harder to parse. I love it. It's monstrous. I mean to use drug. Graph- uh, green law's um phrasing it's uncomfortable it's uneasy it's asking me to look into the abyss and that's saying something about me yeah and i think that's uh that's i mean i i say that it's harder to parse but at the same time that's that is what art does to us that is what art does to us it doesn't hold up the snow white mirror that says you're the fairest of them all that's right. not you yeah, I mean, as sure. kids, we know that the person who does that <laughs> is the villain. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I don't know how we can forget that as adults. I mean, I think about it. You know, there was a—I remember in my in my first novel, there's a scene where I have a young child level this slur at um, one of the, the the child main characters, and it's a slur that was leveled to me. Um, it's an anti-Indigenous slur. I mean, basically, it's Igorota, which is a you know. Igorot is a particular indigenous uh group from which I likely descend considering where my family is from. But the way it's deployed certainly the way it was deployed in my community growing up, it was it was a way of it was a slur. It was a way of pejoratively talking about someone who is dark skinned or savage or something. And then I remember someone who who does have active links uh, and and does identify as, as Igorot and coming up and being like, I, I really hated that you used that slur. I felt really like um what is, the word, what is the word that she used yeah i was just shocked to see it and I think the feeling that I felt about it was that as an author I myself know that's a slur that's not a slur that I'm using but I'm depicting a particular community mm-hmm. and it it's not commensurate to that community one to not talk about the fact that colorist slurs anti-indigenous slurs anti-black slurs were, were being freely used within that community but also you know it would also be a disservice both to that community and to the art to then put in this like authorial note. But she knew that was a slur in this kind of like extra diegetic like narrative way, which would only serve ultimately to absolve me so that all you readers know I'm using this slur, but I'm using it. I'm like a woke person. I'm conscious. Like, so this is the character, not me. And I, I can hold myself above it. And I think one of the things about the art that sometimes feels the most the riskiest to us the most visceral to us is art where we feel that the artist has not held herself above the world that they're building for us that i am implicated in those slurs that i'm implicated as someone who's been the subject of them and you know maybe as someone who's grown up in the education of them so then maybe. Thought about other people, you know, if you're growing up in the logic, in that type of like um ultimately, you know, racist colonial case system logic. When I when I think about the books that mattered to me, I never think of them in the context of things like it was morally edifying or it made me a better person, or it was not problematic. When people talk about books or art that means something, the language we use is visceral, that saved my life. Yeah. This wrecked me, this destroyed me. We're talking you know, the ways that books can dissolve us, which is not that dissimilar to how life dissolves us. How people, the people that we meet, that we will love and live with and fight with and have to leave. I'm also talking about what it means to have a family, what it means to have friends, what it means to be a person in the world. None of that can be understood under the rubric of, well, is it problematic or not? You know, that's not what it is to to be a person.
0: Well, I, I love this idea of family and fighting and fighting with family being part of being in a family. A- and in your critique of Didier and your notion of writing as a practice – of being in the world and being of the world rather than, as you've just talked about, perhaps erasing the world in a certain way to tell your story on an elevated platform. Um, it reminds me of, of, a, of the last conversation I had with Christina Rivera Garza, who has this notion of disappropriation, uh, of writing practices that don't hide their debts to others, that, mm. that emphasized the material conditions of production that allowed the writing to exist in the first place, that disappropriate materials, essentially, to, in her words, return all writing to its plural origins. Um, this makes me think of your 25 pages of acknowledgments and endnotes at, <laughs> at the end of the book and how you describe your work cited section as a literary land acknowledgment. But I wondered if you see your citational practice as part of being in the world and of the world or of returning writing to its plural origins because there does feel like a sense of generosity in the ways that you're revealing the materials at the end
1: oh i at first didn't want to do that not because i didn't want to reveal i mean just because i was like oh the work guys there's a lot of stuff that's cited in this and i just was like i'm gonna have to go through it and then my editor was like but you could do it in this playful way you could you know it could be in your voice and I wouldn't really edit it and then I was like oh <laughs> basically she was like just go ham and then I could go full nerd and do like long digress- digressions on Spencer and you know it's just kind of it was like a like a weird director's commentary of a book and that was uh, that was fun and it is also I think I mean as you said when, even when we were talking about etymology and things like that I am always interested in the all of the earth but gets dragged up you know books can be a very especially when they're sort of circulating in a market as a commodity and have a beautiful cover and existed like a jewel in a bookshop they can seem like these sort of discrete objects that kind of just sort of appear sweet generous and then you read them and the i I love that idea about the material production that goes into the work i mean i also think this when i (laughs) my acknowledgements are always very very long I feel like I always thank anybody that I met at the uh, during the time of making a book. I you'll probably be named <laughs> within within the with, within the acknowledgements, just because I, I I think that way. I have a complicated relationship to indebtedness, debt, and inheritance, which I think is probably clear from the essays. I think in the essays I'm more generous about the power of not the power, but of the of how indebtedness lives in me and trying to contrast it to the kind of received ideas we feel, especially in American uh, or in Western literary discourse, which is about like artistic freedom, um, which I'm trying to oppose to things like artistic inheritance or indebtedness. Wouldn't it be more interesting rather than to think of ourselves as artists that are completely free to do anything? And have no limits um, to instead think of ourselves as also people who are to think of all the places where we are delimited where we are contextualized where we are where all the dirt around us around the carrot of us the root vegetable of us hasn't yet been washed off to you know to sell to make to make a beautiful beautiful jewel of a thing i'm I'm saying that i'm I have a complicated relationship to it because I think In my fiction, I wrestle a lot more with indebtedness and inheritance. And sometimes I sometimes feel, recently, because I'm writing, because I'm working on fiction now, I sometimes feel that my fiction and my nonfiction are almost not diametric. They are absolutely in relation to each other. But I feel like sometimes everything that I say that I want (laughs) to do in nonfiction, I have to almost do the opposite in fiction or all the stuff that I'm scared of, all the stuff that I think is quote unquote problematic, or all the stuff that I think that I would otherwise run from. Seemingly that seems to be what I have to do in fiction. So w- while at the same time I I feel like I'm haunted by the idea of indebtedness. And this is because I grew up with the concept of utangolo, the Filipino concept of the debt of the inside. Which is a pernicious. I mean, it's it's a great cultural touchstone, and also, as my father once said, the worst, <laughs> the worst thing to happen to our culture. Mm-hmm. I think I'm also thinking about ways that we, and my maybe I think specifically, women and other marginalized people, have a different relationship to debt and inheritance, and how for some of us it can also be powerful. To so going back to the idea that um, you were talking about earlier from Dion Brand about sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So, thinking about that sometimes thorny relationship between indebtedness and also rejection and sovereignty, I think those are the kind of things, those are the questions I'm working through now.
0: You have this quote by Berger in the book Reality is not a given, it has to be continually sought out, held. I'm tempted to say salvaged. Reality is inimical to those with power, which I really love. Um, I want to bring that just for a moment into questions of representational politics. You you express frustration that a lot of Asian American anti-racist politics and art focuses on visibility, Asian visibility, and how visibility is being confused with liberation or or justice. Um, To quote you, and this also touches on debt again, you say, the art that I truly love, the art that has saved me, never made me just feel represented it did not speak to my vanity my desperation to be seen positively at any cost it made me feel solid it told me I was minor and showed me my debts it held me together so let's it would feel like a crime not to have you speak to positive representation mm-hmm. at least for a moment and also um, what it means to be shown you're minor and in debt, a- and in a positive way. I mean, I think a lot of people would yeah. think of to being shown to be minor and in debt. I'm not going to read that. I don't want to engage with that art that's going to make me feel minor and in debt.
1: Well, particularly from an American context, we hate that. We hate anything that shows us to be powerless, to be to be surrendered, to be vanquished, to be small, um, to be not that meaningful you know so much of our uh, the, the the mythos of ourselves the story that we tell ourselves is being exceptional grand beautiful america the beautiful blessed um and, and enchanted people you know in a very specific way and, and and i feel like the song i kept or the the, the line i kept saying was about how it, when my first novel came out it was that you know like the thing that obsessed me was banality <laughs> and the thing that i kept returning to and 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 politically the thing that felt the most uh exciting to me or exciting or even radical now sometimes i sometimes lump radical in with problematic in terms of like words that seem to have political content but like as you said when you pull a string on it it all kind of dissolves um yeah positive representation i mean you know much like i was fighting for my life about roma (laughs) I feel like I I, I am in several group chats finding from my life about positive representation and its discontents. I think I don't, you know, going back to Garth Greenwell, actually, I was doing an event with R.O. Kwan, um, the launch at Green Apple Books, and she quoted, and now I feel like, uh, once again, this is going to be a running theme of this uh, interview my anxiety around quoting authors wrong. She said something beautiful. We were talking about positive representation art and we were talking about, you know, kind of um, mainstream, should we say, mainstream like queer art that nevertheless kind of fulfills um, like heteronormative sort of um, standards um, you know, around sort of able-bodied people or or around uh, whiteness or et cetera. And I think she quoted uh, Garth Greenwell saying something like, like, I understand what that art got us, like I, I understand the practical, even financial, economic, like the doors that it opened for us. Mm. But writing oh sorry, wow, my iPods li- my iPods literally died. <laughs> they were they were like, Well, if you're not that's like, a am about to you. Wow, okay. My AirPods are Republican. We know that now. Um, <laughs> yeah, he said, I understand what that art got us but i'm not making art for people who already think i'm disgusting and i mean and she said it she said it in a very emotional i mean yeah emotional. i got emotional everybody in the room got emotional but i think that's a real that's a, a very beautiful very succinct encapsulation of it i think i um, the concern that i have with positive representation art you know capital p capital r capital a is that so much of it is ultimately still just as i say in the essay just part of the just another armed wing of white supremacy it's part of the i think about it just because the drive to positive representation as i've seen it has been one that says well you've got to have it be palatable it has to don't threaten white people have these things be translated we don't want to see you know if there's a queer character a queer side character still handmade into like the main hetero narrative. Ultimately, all of this is an audition for us to be seen as human. Let's continue auditioning to be seen as people. And I'm just not interested in auditioning to be seen as a person. And I think that's the issue that I have. That's the kind of largest issue that I have with positive representation. I think the other issue that I think I I grapple with, particularly, I think, in the uh, specific kind of asian american uh representation question is is one that we were uh, i touched on earlier about the some of the experiences that i have as a filipina feeling and having felt all my life a dislocation or a disjunction from you know some of what we might think of as asian american politics and 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 feeling that you know a lot of the racism that i experienced growing up was intra asian racism was uh, an intra-Asian classism, uh, a very specific racism against Filipinos and Filipino people, Filipino people, and by uh, middle-class or wealthier East Asian uh, communities and people and classmates, and and I did, I just to to have all of those experiences and then be expected to like cheerlead art that celebrated ultimately like my oppressors felt that's a I mean that feels it feels as strange to me as you know being asked to like co-sign Hanka or Didion in the way I, I, I didn't I don't see a, a a difference except that I'm because of the kind of um, umbrella of solidarity uh, I'm expected to essentially um to confer legitimacy or to to, to fall in line as it is and you know I think about I mean I think about that when you know there's supposedly like AAPI Heritage Month. Like here are all the AAPI writers or or books you should read. And there's no Pacific Islanders on the list. Okay. Yeah. How explain to me how that's AAPI. I think that's all that's been an ongoing um conversation. And I think that's it's not easily resolved just because of the 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 I mean the vast economic differences, the vast like historical positioning Um, The memories, I mean, like, you know, I grew up watching Japanese anime and my grandpa, who, you know, as I said, worked for the U.S. Army, held very anti-Japanese views because of his experience essentially being tortured by Japanese soldiers. You know, my uncle, my father's brother was in the Bataan Death March. Mm. So uh, to have asked them to understand that me watching sailor moon was this act of like asian solidarity would have been i mean not would have been was utterly un- incomprehensible to them i remember my grandpa being like why are you watching this you know in, in ways that we might have we might now like tell tell a young kid of color who was watching like uh you know racist art like why are you watching this um so those are the the, the ways that my ease or, or or feelings about positive representation are complicated i mean the other side of it is that the art's just bad fam <laughs> it's uh, often it's just not i mean when you uh, i mean as i say in the essay like when art is made for to represent people positively you feel it <laughs> yeah
0: you do well i mean the, when i said earlier that I wish we could have talked the whole time about problematic writers, which I think I could have. And I think we could have talked. The other thing that I wish we could have done this whole time is geek out on films. Cause I'm a film, <laughs> film nerd. And, hey. and many of my favorite directors are from Asia though. The ones I'm most passionate about are different ones than the ones you focus on here. But for a last question, I do want to at least touch on your chapter. Um, autobiography on Asian film. Um, especially since we've been talking this whole time about reading it, reading and seeing, we can't not talk about one thread of this chapter, which is the way some of these directors create scenes where the viewer is not seeing everything, mm-hmm. but not in the way of Didion and Hanka. not a willful not seeing as a sleight of hand, but uh, not showing as a form of privacy. Mm-hmm. And also... Sh- showing love as sometimes a way of creating a safe space for someone for someone else to be free and alone by themselves. In one film, you, you dissect how the director shows someone covering their face to, to sob, and that he is showing us a private grief, uh, showing by not showing, essentially. So we don't see, but we see, or, or we imagine into the seeing as much as we can. Which somehow I also connect to the way you don't translate or explain non-English languages in your novel, for instance. But either way, I guess talk to us for a moment about this different mode of not showing, qualitatively different than the not showing we've been discussing, because it's not a weaponized not showing for one, which reminds me of Glissant's notion of the right to opacity. But but I want to hear what you... Right. are bringing into this because it feels important to art making to me
1: yeah well first of all i want to know what are the directors <laughs> uh, well i
0: i would say probably right. number one is lee chang dong oh yeah, i yeah, think yeah. all of his films are amazing but po- right. poetry that movie is i think is mind-blowing no, i
1: haven't seen that you know i'm gonna write and
0: secret one. sunshine
1: yes yeah Yeah. And that's yeah. a great oh, but poetry is oh, my oh, favorite that
0: um riusuke hamaguchi um, oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah!
0: Not just drive my car. Th- the movie that got overlooked the same year, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, but even more, his five-hour film, Happy Hour. Oh, amazing!
1: Okay, hold on. <laughs> Speaking of my life, because I do like very. Happy mean... Hour
0: is incredible. I mean, the one movie that is close to my heart. I I like, I like a lot of the films that you engage with. I don't want to say like I, I I'm a Wong Kar Wai <laughs> fan and. Um, but uh, the, the one movie that you do talk a lot about that I, that is very close to my heart is the assassin.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So good.
1: Oh, it's so good. Oh, I can't, I sometimes, sometimes my partner knows it's that kind of day. If I'm just playing that song, the one with the bagpipes and just like blasting it in my earphones and crying, (laughs) it's like, okay, (laughs) it's that kind of day.
0: I should (laughs) also add a Fung mm, oh yeah. Oh. his—I don't know if I said it right—but his latest film,
1: oh, *Memoria*. I haven't seen that with <sighs> Tilda Swinton.
0: So good.
1: Is it? Oh, I haven't seen. It. I think the latest film I saw of him was *Uncle Boonmee*, mm-hmm. who his past lives. I, I haven't. Yeah. I think that was the last film I saw of his.
0: The new one recreates cinematic language, oh. like it's—it's the it's first in, a, I think, a new form of cinema um actually like if you get it it's never going to be on on computer so if you get a chance Ah. to see it you have to see it
1: oh god oh this is okay this is my nightmare okay i will i'm gonna have to find a way to you'll get it
0: you you can go online and find out where it is and it'll it'll show up in each town for just a day or a week and Ah. it only plays in one theater at a time that's incredible so yeah do see it
1: that syndromes in a century i remember that that i i almost wrote about syndromes in a century because that movie also really fucked me up um but yes the assassin fucked me up i i <laughs> i watched that i watched that at the VFI, i think it was, it was in london and i just was like oh i, I love who's i'm gonna watch it and it was absolutely i mean we're talking about the visceral language we use i was wrecked in the theater and, it's funny just to use this kind of like deliberately <laughs> sort of visceral kind of punchy language for a movie that, especially in the kind of critical reviews of it, was is so meditative, is so slow in some ways, is, is so um, careful and is also uh, a movie that just in the way it's framing how the f- human characters are situated in the frame, how he deals with Natural beauty in a way that's not fetishistic. How he how how he puts people in the world in a way that feels very true to what it feels like to being in the world, which is to say, to feel small and beholden and helpless. Yeah, that movie fucked me up. <laughs> and, but that scene that you're talking about, and that is the scene that fucked me up. Um, the scene where Shuki, uh, Shuchi is she's hearing something very emotional but she herself I mean this is another uh, all of the characters that I like this is also I, I'm now realizing the <laughs> the relation between this character and Anne Elliot every character I love is some like highly repressed <laughs> person who then has to have a capital E emotion and basically uh, upends their own life because of it she covers her face and all you see is chu Chi's sort of body and kind of you know not her face her her head her shoulders shaking as she weeps and i just remember thinking that i hadn't i hadn't seen something like that before i hadn't seen private grief de- depicted that way before depicted so banally because also like the, the entire scene, I mean, diegetic, he, he maintains a lot of diegetic sound throughout the movie. So you're also in the kind of, it also just reminds you of sometimes how awkward it is if you're in a room crying and you're the only one crying and there's still like ambient noise around you. And you, the feeling is this momentous thing is happening to me and the world is just going on around me. He's so attentive to, to what that sounds like and what that feels like. But I think... You know, going back to the things that we were talking about with ambiguity, I think this is really one of the, this scene and, and some of the other scenes that I, I, I talk about in that essay are, are exactly as you say, are scenes that ask us into ind- undetermined or indefinite places, but that aren't ultimately ambiguous. They're not weaponizing their own opacity to avoid telling us something. In fact, they're showing us a specific specific opacity to remind us about the parts of our lives that are sometimes illegible even to ourselves, the parts of ourselves that are sometimes illegible or unreachable to others. Or even more than that, the parts of ourselves that are legible, that are comprehensible, but in ways that almost go beyond the visual or the linguistic, which is to say, sometimes we just feel something. Mm. We're with another person and we feel it. And it's not because they said it. And it's not even because they were sobbing in front of me and therefore I understood. I I think that the thing that I'm really talking about is intimacy. The, The shock of intimacy and how it comes in unexpected ways, which is also the realm of art the scenes that haunt us later on the scene i mean in our the scenes that we watch in our lives and then haunt us forever uh, i find at least in my life there are scenes of intimacy that speak to something somehow unnamed in my past or in my life as yet unnamed maybe that i don't have i'm not ready yet to put a name to but nevertheless touched met we're kin with i think a lot of writers will tell you that despite the fact that obviously as writers words are our medium i think a lot of what we also are working with is the ineffable of course things that can't be said and i i mean i obviously grapple with that i grapple with that in the berger essay where i you know i think about how the ineffable and things that can't be said somehow you know are conveniently used essentially like confidentiality classes, clauses where we don't ever have to talk about institutional abuse and sexual harassment in academic institutions. So that's one way the ineffable gets deployed. The fact that it can be weaponized doesn't take away from the truth of it. The truth that there that there are parts of our lives that are ineffable, that there are parts of our our Writing, I would say, I think a large, certainly for me, I think a large part of my writing is writing into places that I don't feel I have the words for. What is that thing that Trinty Minha sometimes said? In maybe she said it in uh, Assemblage, or she said something like, "I'm not writing about, I'm writing around." And she might not have said writing; she might have said, "I'm filming, filming," because she's obviously a, a theorist but also a documentary filmmaker. So just as you know, the medium of writers is as much words as things that can be put into words. I think the for the cinema, it's the same. It's it's things that can be seen, but also fundamentally the things that evade our senses that evade our vision that somehow come to come to our knowledge through ways that feel I mean that's I think that's why a lot of people thought like the cinema was going back to the idea of magic trick. They thought that they thought it was sorcery.
0: Well, in lieu of in lieu of us having a deep conversation about empathy, which you do in this book, and which comes up a lot in on the show, um, with Natalie Diaz, with Solma Sharif, um, originally with Leslie Jameson, along many many years ago. But some of the f- some of the funniest parts of the book are also in the, your empathy section. Uh, I think a lot of your. Um, Your snark comes out here. So I'm just going to read a couple of lines in lieu of that conversation we could have had. The concept of instrumentalizing fiction or art as a kind of ethical protein shake, such that reading more and more diversely will somehow build the muscles in us that will help us see other people as human, makes a kind of superficial sense and produces a superficial effect. Or... If marginalized stories serve primarily to educate, console, and productively scold a comfortable white readership, then those stories will have failed their readers, and those readers will have failed those stories. I don't know any writer who have asked what they wanted their work to do in the world would reply, make better white people, which is just incredible. And it feels fitting that you end the book as you've we've already touched on with the Cyclops, with this question of who is the pirate, who is the shepherd, and this notion of scene and and the 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 pirate who is our hero put mm. putting out the eye of the the guy who's minding his own business with his sheep. But um I was hoping we could end with a final reading from the empathy chapter.
1: There is perhaps no word more beloved nor more boring in the American lexicon than freedom. Here in the land of the free, where freedom rings over freedom fries. Most of us already know that the fantasy of American freedom has always been just that, the stuff of fantasy, a fever dream of lone pioneer individualism built on the back of slave labor and the theft of indigenous land, A photoshopped image of ruggedly independent, usually male, interiority a la Henry David Thoreau, subsidized by the mother who does the laundry and brings the sandwiches, like a 19th century Instagram boyfriend. I'm far more interested in inheritance. In not being a person or a nation sweet, generous, not some manifest destiny American settler colonial, who, in the noxious words of equally noxious Rick Santorum, thinks we created a blank slate, we birthed a nation from nothing. Understanding who we are from the perspective of inheritance, not freedom or exceptionalism, means knowing ourselves as fundamentally made possible by and fundamentally reliant upon other people, both living and dead. Some we may know intimately and some we may never know. The kind of art and the kind of artist that would refuse entirely this reliance and inheritance is the kind of art and artist that is afraid to know the ways in which its making, its freedoms, its universality, its predominance is made possible by webs of connections, violences, erasures, and enclosures. This art, tist, doesn't want to know how it is made possible because it wants to neither be made nor possible. It wants to just be unquestioned, singular. This art, tist, doesn't want to be marked because it thinks of being marked as something beneath itself, something for capital O OTHERS. This is why white people in an audience get very uncomfortable when you repeatedly call them white, as I have found to my amusement. It wants to remind everyone of its uniqueness. It doesn't want to be reminded of its debts. But what if our artistic practices were founded not on the presumption of artistic freedom, certainly at least not the individualistic, late capitalist brand of American freedom, What if we as artists didn't fight tooth and nail to safeguard the freedom to do whatever we wanted in our art? In fact, what if we didn't come to art to practice the trite choreography of that freedom at all? What if art was the space not for us to enjoy our freedom, but for us to encounter our bondages and our bondedness? That in our art making and our art consumption, we paid attention not just to the things that made us feel free, expansive, containing multitudes, but to the things that remind us we are not just free, but delimited. The things that make us feel our smallness, our ordinariness, our contingency, our vulnerability, and reliance. The things that make us feel not neutral, but named, actually known by the world, so that we might be truly in it and of it. Many of us already come to our art that way, and always have never having tasted the sugared privilege of that neutral freedom in the first place, having always been already marked, delimited, named, othered. Perhaps it seems strange to suggest that taking a communal, structural, relatively dispassionate, even, view of racism and white supremacy and its effects in our reading and intellectual culture would actually be a greater act of intimacy than the incomplete empathy we traffic in today. But what could be more intimate as a civic person then finally fully seeing oneself not as one sole free actor in the world, such that it would be enough to achieve justice by simply not being overtly racist, or by being satisfied with paternalistic overtures of charitable feeling, or by thinking that one's defense of a fascist could be apolitical as long as it focused only on his art, or by hoping that one's patently obvious exploitation of free speech to protect oneself from legitimate critique by marginalized voices would go unremarked but instead to know oneself as one small flawed part of a whole, to know that the contours of our lives are drawn by each other, that the history that made us is the history that makes us, that we are implicated in the full sense of the word, implicated like perpetrators, witnesses, and inheritors of a great crime, the other word for which might be our history, and implicated like pages bookmarked by someone who wanted to remember what was written there. We are folded, inseparably, into each other. Because none of this work is meant to be done alone. Reparatively critical reading is not meant to be work performed solely by readers and writers of color. But the logic of empathy would have us believe so. It would have us believe that other people tell stories which are there to make us feel things, the line between the two neatly delineated, The logic of empathy says, I feel your pain, but the logic of inheritance knows this transaction has always been corrupt at its core. The story I'm telling is not just something for you to feel sympathy for, rage against, be educated by. It's a story about you too. This work has left a will and we are all of us named in it. The inheritances therein belong to every reader, every writer, every citizen. So too the world we get to make from it.
0: Thank you, Elaine, for being on the show today.
1: Oh my goodness, this was incredible. This was so much fun. I wish we could talk Asian film all day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could too. We've been talking today to Elaine Castillo, the author of the essay collection, How to Read Now. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener-supporter. Join our brainstorm of future guests, receive the supplementary resources with each conversation, and choose from a wide variety of other potential enticements whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, personalized handmade Korean wrapping cloth from Mary Kim Arnold, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you, a bonus audio from everyone from Arthur Z to Forrest Gander to Jory Graham, from Ted Chang to Victoria Chang, or maybe you just simply find these conversations substantive, meaningful, even life-affirming, you can find out more at patreon.com the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity and Lance Cleland the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops and finally I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro their album Imre Lodbrog and Sapati Me can be found on iTunes and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at Soundcloud.com slash Barbara